The Vancouver Canucks are one of those teams. We don't know what they are until the puck drops. It could go one of two ways. They could either be very good or very bad, and there's no in-between. Vegas, we probably know them as the favorites to win the Pacific Division, but beyond that, how good of a team are they? Washington is expected to be a Metro Division contender for the title once again, but in the playoffs, they're like a box of chocolates. You're not sure what you're going to get. And finally, we close out our off-season breakdowns with the Winnipeg Jets, who have done their part to shore up their defense, but at what cost? Plus, a pair of key RFA signings have finally signed in Vancouver, but for how long? Episode 288 of the Lace Em Up podcast starts right now. And now, it's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Duboff. Part 8 of our off-season breakdown series. Uh, So this will be the final one this week, Brett. And uh, we're going to talk about a team that made a lot of waves in the news cycle this week, the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, it's weird. Well, first off, it's, it's kind of crazy that it's, this is our last uh, episode episode of this series because yeah, this you know, is the end. <laughs> it, it feels like um, it's been a while since that's actually, um, you know, it, it feels like it's been forever that we started this series. But then, um, yeah, I don't know. It was really like just two months. So yeah, um, it, it took us basically through most yeah. of the off season, and now next week we're mm-hmm. going to be talking about our. Uh, 2021-22 uh, season preview, I suppose, where yep. we think we know what's going to happen and then it gets thrown out the window within the first month. But, right. um, yeah, the offseason's kind of flown by fast, and this series has helped with that in a way. It's yeah. two full months. Yeah, for sure. Um, and also, I guess it's kind of fitting, too, because, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it um, in a bit, but... It is fitting that, like, because there, in terms of free agent signings, there was really just three big ones: um, Peterson, Hughes, and Kachuk um, have yet still yet to be signed. And then uh, this week, uh, EP and Quinn Hughes uh, both signed in like in a matter of seconds. So, um, right when we were about to cover them for the Vancouver thing, it's like they knew that. You were about to cover them. <laughs> the hockey they, gods. The yeah, hockey yeah. gods and you were just like, yeah, we got you, fam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to just talk this. We're just like, okay, wait. You have, you have content, went, yeah. Like, we, sh- we could sign in uh, the middle of, Jan- uh, in middle of July, but um, we're going to wait till Brett and Steve have to talk about us in um, early October. <laughs> a lot better than December 1st, which is when uh, Neilander eventually signed back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, that was last year. Um, so, um, so yes, in terms of, I guess the benefit of like having these be the last teams is a lot of these trades we've already kind of talked about, but, um, so in terms of additions, Connor Garland and OEL, um, and I guess I, you owe me a Bergeron jersey or something like that. 
Um, yes, yeah, Bergeron's what we agreed upon, yep. and I will uh, get uh, on that uh, shortly. Um, yeah. And I'll even post a picture of it uh, when I have it. Yeah, and in case you guys forgot, it's um, Steve made a bet with me that OEL was going to be on the Bruins um, by the end, uh, by the start of this year. This next yeah, season. January first, twenty twenty two. I bet if Oliver Ekman Larson wasn't on the Bruins, I would get a Bruins yep. jersey, and Brett got to choose which name I put on the back. I was open to Hudobin or some obscure <laughs> Bruins player, but we both uh, decided that Bergeron yeah. was the best play. So I will happily get a Bergeron jersey. In the yeah, game. I was. I was thinking of. I mean, I Kudobin would have been weird, but because um, I don't <laughs> know if you could even. Because you would have to, like, search to find a Kudobin Bruins jersey. I mean, that would be kind of cool. I guess cool, I could but... pre-order one yeah, and, yeah. like, customize it. I was, possible. yeah, yeah, I guess that could uh, could happen. I was thinking of, like, doing, like, Marshawn or something, but I didn't want to... Like, I, Although you do like Marshawn more than other non-Bruins fans do. I, yeah, um, a bit more since but, he's become less of a pest. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I feel like in terms <laughs> of like, if you go to like a Sens game and you're wearing yeah. a Bruins jersey and Bertrand's on the back, they'll be yeah. like, yeah, okay, yeah, well, right, that, right. that passes. Right, right. But um, but yeah, I figured I, I'd I'd go easy on you since it wasn't really like. Like if o, if OEL was on the Bruins, it's not like I would have done anything. So it was just like, <laughs> all right, I'll just, I'll, yeah. I'll be nice to him. Um, anyways, um, so the trade was OEL and Connor Garland to the Canucks, um, and then the Coyotes get Antoine Roussel, Jay Beagle, Louis Erickson. They also got a first round pick that year, which ended up being Dylan Gunther. Uh, which, I mean, can, the Canucks may end up regretting, but we'll see. Uh, they also, uh, Coyotes also get a 2022 second round pick for Vancouver and a 2023 seventh round pick. So a lot of things for these two players. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's interesting because, like, I think Connor Garland was the best player for the Coyotes this past year. Um, he, uh, he had 39 points in 49 games, um, this past year for the Arizona Coyotes. What was strange though, I mean, I guess it wasn't so really that strange, but it kind of just shows how crazy Arizona's management was, um, or is, is that like he was an RFA and then he signs to, um, and then, like, the season's over, and you would think that, like, okay, elite, like, yeah, Arizona's going on the rebuild, that's fine, but you would think that they would at least, like, just have some discussion saying, like, hey, we're, we're planning on trading you, or something like that. There was none of that. They didn't even talk to him. They didn't even try to assign him to an extension. They just uh, didn't even communicate with him at all about it, so they left him on red. Um, and, uh, yeah, but it's, it's just crazy because he had a career year. Um, and I don't know, I, I think in terms of how he's going to fit in Vancouver, I think he'll be, um, yeah, I, I think he'll fit in very nicely because he's, um, you know, if that's any indication of like what he can do on a terrible team, it's like, now I'm imagining what he can do when he has, Guys like uh, Pedersen, uh, Brock Besser, 
JT Miller, um, Bo Horvat, uh, you know, I guess the list can go on. So it's, he just adds another element to the Canucks. And, um, and yeah, it, it's very possible that um, he'll, he'll be like, he'll take it up even a, an extra notch. Yeah, Connor Garland's an interesting case because if you look at uh, some of his uh, junior numbers uh, with the Moncton Wildcats, um, he was more known for his assists than his goals. Yep. I mean, in his third season, he had 35 goals in 67 games, um, but 94 assists for a total of 129 points in those 67 games. The year after, 39 goals in 62 games, again, pretty good. But 89 assists to follow that, uh, giving him 128 points in 62 games. And then, since he's arrived in the NHL, he's been mostly a goal scorer in every season that he's played. He's played, uh, oddly enough, only three years in the big show. He had 13 goals in his first 47 games. Then his second year, he had 22 goals in 68 games uh, for 39 points that year. And then this past year was arguably his best. In 49 games, he had 39 points. 12 of those were goals. So that was mostly an assist uh, primary season. And given the fact that Arizona wasn't really that good, to only have a minus three rating yeah. is actually pretty good for, for Connor Garland. But now you're getting him extended for that long-term contract of five years at almost $5 million per year. And the thing about the Canucks is they kind of remind me an awful lot of Montreal last year. Where, yes, they have a lot of talent to choose from, but there's only one puck on the ice. And where have we seen this before? Like, some someone's numbers are going to drop as a result because you can only distribute the puck to so, to so many places uh, on the ice. And especially on the wings, um, the Canucks are, are known for their depth. So, for example, and again, I know it's preseason, I know it's early, but here are the early line projections. Obviously, you have Pearson down the middle as your first line center. You have rookie Niels Hoglander on the latest lineup sheet mm. from September 23rd as the first line left winger, Brock Besser on the right side. JT Miller on line two is centering a line that features the newcomer, Connor Garland, on the left, and Vasily Pog Colson, who we'll talk about later, on the right. That could obviously change uh, yep. depending on... Paul Golson's train camp, whether or not he needs more seasoning, whether or not he needs to play in the AHL first, because he hasn't really done that yet. He just turned pro. So there's some uncertainty there. But again, they, they have some options. Then third line centers, get this, Bo Horvat, the captain, is the third line center. What a luxury that must be. Uh, Tanner Pearson's the third line left winger. Zach McEwen is the third line right winger. That brings us to the fourth line, which is centered by Brandon Sutter, Tyler Mott on the left side, Jason Dickinson, who they also brought in on the right side. So that's a little snippet of what the Canucks could look like. But you also have the likes of Connor Garland um, in, in that picture. And you also have depth guys that they brought in like Nick Patan and Justin Dowling mm. as well. Um even on defense, they brought in Tucker Poolman, uh, right. Sheldon Rempel, Brad Hunt, um, Brady Keeper, who unfortunately is going to miss some time, I think, due to injury. Um, they have Yaroslav Halak backing up uh, Demko yep. after buying out Braden Holpe. So uh, the dynamic of the goaltending is also going to be interesting to look at. But uh, similar to Montreal, they have a lot of primary offensive weapons in their top nine. 
and I, I found their offseason very interesting because they seemed to go the route of Calgary last year where they would get these low-key bottom six guys that, you know, could be good as opposed to, like, going all in with guys on deals like the one that Jay Beagle got or the one that right. Louis Erickson got, Antoine Roussel, yada, 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 who, by the way, they got rid of in that trade with uh, the Coyotes for Oliver Ekman Larson and Connor Garland. Right, right. Um, they decided to go the safer, cheaper route. The thing is, that didn't really work for Calgary as they missed the playoffs. So there's no guarantees that this approach is going to work for Vancouver this season. Yeah, I, that is a good point. It's, it does seem like they're just putting in all their chips and, and seeing how it goes with these two guys. But on the same token, it, like they you know they get um, two guys who, and, and I guess we should also talk about OEL. Um, he had 24 points in 46 games the last year, which isn't too bad for a defenseman, but like, um, in years past, he's like he's had like forty point games, or um, uh, the year before that, thirty point games. He was also a captain for Arizona uh, towards the end of his career and stuff. Or and getting paid eight plus million for what yeah, the next five or six years? Something like that, which is why I, I didn't want OEL on the team, but um, <laughs> on on the Bruins. But yeah, he uh, seven point two million for him here. But yeah, so so I, I think that could he could help end up helping out uh, Quinn Hughes. Uh, I guess they're both left-handed defensemen, so um, so it is. I would imagine that when Quinn Hughes is not on the ice, Oliver Ekman Larson is, um, and vice versa and stuff like that. But um, OEL is probably going to be more of a like. It seems like he's more defense. He he has some defensive sets where Quinn Hughes uh, doesn't like still needs to improve on that area of the game for him, but um, but yeah, it's still um, that could help their improvement too because when you look at their list of defensemen, it's like Tyler Myers, he's okay, but he's being paid a lot. They just got Tucker Pullman, Jack Rathbone, he could be pretty good. He was good in Harvard. Um, and then, um, and yeah, it's Travis Kamenik, but then everyone else, it just, it's just kind of like, wait, Luke Shen, Oliu Levy, he hasn't really shown anything. Brad Hunt, uh, Tucker Pullman, like those, like those are just like really unknowns at this point. Um, yeah, know, so, so um, and you mentioned the defense because I think there is a bit of a weak point and yep. it's mostly on, uh, the right side, like you mentioned, yep. Hughes and Oliver Ekman Larson are left-handed shots. Uh, Jack Rathbone as a third-pairing uh, guy on the left side is pretty good, and Brad Hunt and Yule Levy, both of those guys, also are left-handed. Mm -hmm. The right-handed side's an interesting case because obviously Tyler Myers is the number one pairing. There is some talk about whether or not Travis Hamnick is going to play this year because of the COVID uncertainty. Still, um, he's he still it appears that he still has concerns, you know, with like it is the family situation and yeah. like the pandemic and how it affects that dynamic as well. So if that proves to be kind of a deal breaker for him this year, that could leave a gap on the right side because right now, if Hamannick doesn't play their best option on the second pairing is Luke Shen. And then after that, it's Tucker Pullman. Like that, that's not really a favorable situation right. for the Canucks to be in. And again, in this division where 
you're comparing defenses. I mean, the Canucks aren't the worst. They're probably like middle of the pack, I would say. But they're definitely they definitely have a better chance to be a contending team with Hamannick on that blue line on that second pairing. Mm-hmm. And with without him as that shutdown option, that could present uh, some big holes to fill. And again, we'll probably put more pressure on Demko and Alak to make up for that right. in net, which, as we saw last year, Demko and whoever's his backup can only do so much to fill Both those teams. voids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Canucks are sitting ducks at that point. Yep. Uh, so in terms of subtractions, we have uh, Cole Lind. He was the Seattle pick. Not a huge loss because he didn't even really play in Vancouver that often. Um, so not a huge loss, but maybe it will be a loss in, for the Utica Comics, Comets. Um, Edler um, also uh, subtract, subtracted for Lind. Um, Braden Holtby, Nate Schmidt, uh who we're about to talk about pretty soon. And then, as uh, we alluded to in that trade, uh, Louis Erickson, Jay Beagle, and Antoine Roussel are all gone as well. Um, and they're Also, in they Arizona. bought out uh, the buyouts Holtby we mentioned, uh, yep. Vertanen, they also bought out oh, because yeah, yeah. of obvious reasons. Yeah, Vertanen has some legal issues now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was interesting, too, when I saw that they signed... So when, when this trade happened, and I was like, okay, so they get... Oliver Ekman Larson, who's making seven point two million, which is a lot. Um, although I guess, uh, I guess the oh Arizona didn't even retain any of it. Um, no, they no the, they did retain uh, some of it. Right, I remember I was, because I was about to his say, cap it was, like, was eight point two five million. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say, wasn't it like eight million or something like that? So okay, yeah, so it's they uh, must have retained eight point two five million, and I think some of it was retained. And it's what's interesting about the Oliver yep. Ekman Larson contract, and I think it should be noted because the, when we talk about the Peterson and Hughes contracts, it's going yep. to be noteworthy. Yep. Over the next three years. Oliver Ekman Larson, his salary, and this is and and this is like the original eight point two five million. If the Canucks didn't get Arizona to retain any, any salary, they would be on the hook for ten point five yeah. million per year over the next three years. Yep. And even with some of that retained salary, that's still what eight plus million right, for right. the next three years. That's a lot. Yeah. So so, anyways, when they signed OEL, because I knew he had like a crazy contract. They, they also signed, uh, Con- they also had to worry about signing Connor Garland and Thatcher Demko as well. And then I was like thinking like, okay, how are they, because then like all of a sudden they only have like, like not that much money in cap space and they still have to sign their two best players and Pedersen and Quinn Hughes, but they somehow did it. Um, so, so uh, let's, let's start with, um, let's start with Elias Pedersen first because um, why not? Um, he he signed for a, a three-year deal uh, worth seven point three five million um, per year, um, and uh, yeah, so that means that he's still an RF. He's still going to be an RFA by the end of this contract. So that that could be really good for them at the end of it because um, you know this guy won the Calder two years ago, um, and he was he's a big reason why like the Canucks are like even like on the the playoff front or made the playoffs in the first place a couple years ago but he got injured for most of the year um but when he was active he still had 21 points in 26 games which actually I'm kind of surprised about because I I remember thinking like oh that's not like 
what we're used to have seen for, for Pedersen. And then, yeah, he gets uh, 21 points in 26 games. Um, so, like, you know, I was thinking that Pedersen is, like, he's definitely an elite player. He's probably top 10, top 20, definitely. And so I was thinking that, okay, he's he's probably worth, like, $10 million. Um, and Quinn Hughes is, you know, just as good. Um, so I was thinking, like, okay, I don't know how they're going to do it because both Hughes and uh, Peterson are uh, very, you know, they're, they're worth at least $10 million or $9 million, um, and that's just money that the Canucks don't have. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, I guess kudos to Jim Benning because he managed to um, get them under the cap and sign team friendly deals so that like you know it's 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 good that they, they I guess like you know maybe they talked them into being like team players so so yeah it was it was a nice contract for both of them and we'll get to Quinn Hughes in a second but uh, what about uh, Peterson because because uh, this could end up being like a Pasternak contract situation or Marshawn or uh, Nathan McKinnon type thing where it's like. Where like in a in like two years we're like wait, Peterson is is only making seven million dollars. When was what what what's going on? So this contract breakdown is very interesting because the cap is seven point three five million. Mm. Uh, I believe the final year I can't remember the exact specifics of the RFA. It's more it's more interesting um, when it's like a one year deal where like you know it for sure. But I'm pretty sure. Um. With, with, with here, here's the deal with restricted free agents. Um, the reason why you see some of them becoming UFAs is because the team that they were on the year prior didn't give them a qualifying offer. And without the team making that qualifying offer by a certain amount of time, by like, I don't know, 4 p.m., 5 p.m., something like that, mm-hmm. uh, whatever the case may be, um, I think it changes uh, every year of the date, but... Um, it's it's around the same time, a couple of weeks before the start of free agency, you have to give out qualifying offers to your RFAs. Every team has to do that. Interesting. If you don't get a qualifying offer, then you basically become a free agent. You can sign anywhere as an RFA. And the team that signs you has RFA control up until you become like 27 years of age, um, the eligible age uh, to become a free agent and sign anywhere you want. Um if you do make a qualifying offer, I believe the final year of that previous deal that you signed, so like in Peterson's case, I think it's going to be in year three. I I think it's, I don't know if it's 100% plus something uh, or, or just a bit over that. Um, but basically the final year of that contract, uh, that's a roughly what the qualifying offer is going to be. So the final year of this contract for Peterson million dollars so like half of this contract is going to be paid out in year three so when it comes time for the canucks to hand out that qualifying offer that qualifying offer is going to be at least 10 million dollars which is a pretty hefty number to pay peterson makes 4 million this year then 7.8 in year two 10.25 the final year Right. So this is what he's done the first three years. You mentioned Brett how good he was, uh, how good he was the first year. Sixty-six points in seventy-one games, twenty-eight goals, thirty-eight assists, and relatively consistent. 
he gets one more assist and one fewer goal the following year for 66 points in three fewer games, 68. So 27 goals, 39 assists, year two, pretty good. And then, of course, when he's out, the Canucks miss his presence greatly. Uh, but in the games that he did play, 21 points, 10 of them goals in 26 games. So not not a bad third season given the circumstances for Pearson. He's a game-changing number one center that, you know, if he works on his face-off game, I think he'll be one of the top centers in the league, at least top 15 in the league. And just his playmaking abilities, the way he sees the ice, it's uncanny. He's a game-changing forward like Kaprizov is, like Panarin is, except he takes face-offs. And that becomes a valuable commodity in the NHL instantaneously. So the fact they were able to get him at that price for the next three years is huge, especially given the money that they're paying Ekman Larson. But they're going to have to pay him at some point. There's also this article that I saw uh, translated in Swedish, I think, um, in the offseason. This was a solid month or two before he was signed. And he says he loves Vancouver. He loves playing there. He loves the city, loves the fans, loves the team. But he also wants to be on a winner. Right. And these next three years are going to be pivotal for the Vancouver Canucks to really show them that, hey, we hope you like what we're doing. We're trying to build a winner here. Beyond these three years, let's see if we can work something out. If these next three years go horrendously bad for Vancouver, this could provide the Canucks with a very sticky situation. And I do applaud Jim Benning for making these deals but the reason right now they are $1.46 million over the salary cap is not because of the Peterson contract and the Hughes contract and the Thatcher Demko contract. It's all of those bargain signings from seasons past coming back to haunt Vancouver. And that's on Jim Benning. Yeah. Yeah, I think like now, with the especially with the addition of um, Garland and OEL, and then you, you sign Pedersen, Hughes, and Demko this uh, this time as well, it's like okay, pressure's on basically for for Jim Benning because it's it, like they're all being like yeah. As I mentioned, yeah, I feel like uh, Pedersen was being underpaid, but at the same time, like the the Canucks don't have any cap space left, <laughs> and um, and uh, so it's it's definitely. Um, so, like, this is going to be the team largely considering if they don't... I mean, I guess they could make a trade during the deadline, which they probably will. But, um, but yeah, this is pretty much the team that they're going for for the, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll see how, it, how that goes and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, Quinn Hughes, which he's also kind of been underpaid just considering what we saw that Miro Heiskanen got, what... Uh, what uh, Zach Wierenski got, what Seth Jones got, what uh, Kale McCarr got. Um, but he ended up signing for... Um, sorry, I had this in a, a couple of seconds, but <laughs> I lost it. Uh, he had six... He, uh, he signed six years, uh, $7.8 million. Um, so, so that's still also pretty cheap considering what I just said because all those other guys, defensemen that I just talked about... They were, you know, they've, they've been making, uh, like, uh, you know, 9 million, 9.5 million, uh, some even 10 million, but, um, but yeah, you, you know, you get Quinn Hughes, who's equally, he's like the defensive version of Elias Pedersen, uh, where like in, um, in his career, 
Uh, he has 97 points in 129 games. So he he just racks up the points and stuff. Um, I do know that like people have been critical of his defensive play, but at the same token, like I I don't necessarily care about that. If you can score in the NHL, even if it's just assists and stuff like that, then you're you know you bring something to the table that's that's not you know um, that's not usual. And so I, I kind of, um, I, I, th- I think there is something to, like, yeah, he, he may need to work on his defense, but, like, so do a lot of young defensemen, and it'll, it'll develop over time. Um, but, um, yeah, overall, I think this is, like, you know, Quinn Hughes is, um, is uh, you know, a prime um player in the NHL so he um and you know maybe he'll end up winning the Norris or being close for the Norris one of these years but um but yeah it's this is another one where we like we could look in the middle of this contract and be like wait uh Quinn Hughes is only making 7.8 million when like Seth Jones is making 9.5 what what the hell um so um, so yeah, I, I like this deal as well, but, um, but yeah, it's also longer term where at the end of this, uh, contract, Quinn Hughes, it will be a UFA. Maybe he'll join his brothers in New Jersey. Um, if that, if that happens, that would be kind of awesome. You get the Hughes trio going yeah, yeah. on there. Brother Luke on the back end yeah. too, for the devils. Yeah. Um, so taking a look at the breakdown of his contract, 4 million very, very neat. Four million in year one, six point five million year two, eight point six million in year three. So at the end of year three, they're going to need to re-sign Peterson, and that's where the price tag for Hughes gets steep because it's nine point five million the year after Peterson needs to be re-signed, then ten point two five million, and then eight point two five in the final year of his deal becomes a free agent after that. So that's interesting to note uh, for Quinn Hughes. Uh, But the numbers don't lie, Brad. He's a premier offensive contributor in this league. 53 points in 68 games, rookie of the year finalist uh, his first year. Obviously, the plus minuses aren't that great, but still 41 points in 56 games. Um, And obviously, you need to to keep into account in the second half. The Canucks are rocked with COVID. They're schedule their uh, made up schedule was egregious where it seemed like they were playing a lot of back-to-backs also peterson like and the time peterson was injured for half the year yeah <laughs> so it was a very Besser, yeah. there was a lot of situations where things were yep. not looking positive at all for the canucks and it was really tough to make any sort of ground but uh, i think under those circumstances quinn Hughes did pretty well and the fact that um People are knocking his defensive abilities. I mean, he's a young kid. There's there's a lot to, to to there's a lot of room to grow for him, and it's not always easy to just have success on both ends of the ice right away in the National Hockey League as a premier offensive player, where your focus, where the focus is always on you, and um, you're getting the attention of the best players. Now, it's it's awfully tough to really. Um, go forth in any game without making any significant offensive blemishes like Eric Carlson makes them Keith Yandel for years. Um, you look at the giveaways and they're, they're pretty high. Uh, you look at um, a lot of the, the premier offensive players 
and they're they're giving away the puck because you know they're always in these left high leverage situations where they're making risky gambles i think if you insulate him around the right players and those players are able to do their jobs perfectly which is shut down type of defense um, and they're able to insulate him properly i think you will see the plus minus get better the numbers will stay the same and he's going to be a better defensive player for it and he's not logging the amount of minutes that thomas shabbat is logging or ivan provrov is logging and i think that's part of the reason why people are so concerned about quinn hughes's defensive game and, and rightfully so but you look at a guy like dougie hamilton that just got the prank truck backed into his parking lot and he's getting like nine million or a year a year or something like that in new jersey that guy was on the carolina hurricanes for a couple of years had the three best years of his career offensively and look what he had to work with he had a shutdown defenseman of brett peche and a shutdown all-around defenseman and jacob slavin so there were the right guys insulating him in carolina and he could just go out there and do his thing and beat Dougie Hamilton, and it worked. Right. So if, if Quinn Hughes gets that type of success in Vancouver where he is properly insulated, uh, the numbers will speak for themselves, and Quinn Hughes and the Canucks will be better for it. Mm. So the insulation part is, is going to be a key factor for the Canucks moving forward. Yeah, but like all in all, good job by Jim Benning to uh, yeah. make this – work because I, w- I was still like questioning why he did all this all these moves to do Garland and stuff because I figured EP and Quinn Hughes would be like nine million or or more uh, for both of them so I figured like why would you even make like a big trade like that if you're going to eventually need- and and not to mention Demko was also a free agent this offseason as well. So I was like, you know, those are those three guys that you need to sign. Um, but but yeah, he somehow managed to do it and more where he gets, you know, um, like he adds the depth into the, the team and gets rid of like the bad contracts of Louis Erickson and Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel. Of course, he shouldn't have like, you know, those, those were contracts that he also signed but he also gets rid of them at the same time so um so yeah I, I guess I could see it end up working out for them but we'll see um in terms of prospects we have uh the best prospect uh I guess it could be Michael DiPietro but um I think it's it's actually instead it's going to be uh Vasily Podkolzin um who was a um so he was in the KHL for most of um, his career, and this past year um, he had 11 points in 35 games, um, and that doesn't seem like a whole lot, but like I think uh, for the most part, like there's rumblings, or I, I think I saw this on Twitter too, is that he um, he doesn't get a ton of ice time for Scott St. Petersburg, uh, just because like Scott St. Petersburg is like loaded um they have like so many they're basically michigan of uh the khl so uh so they have pretty much everyone so like just i i don't think he had a ton of ice time in scott st petersburg but even still like he had 11 points in 35 games and then in the playoffs he had 11 points in 16 games so he he added the the season total 
in the playoffs. Um, and then uh, he also played in the, the World Juniors, where he was pretty impressive as well, four points in seven games. So it's like, just because he, he had a, somewhat of a disappointing regular season, he's still, like, you know, I guess he picked it up towards the end um, of the year. And, you know, and even in the World Juniors, when it's, like, the best on best um, in terms of, like, with people of the same age, uh, he ends up, like, you know, performing pretty well there. Um, and then in terms of, like, other scouting reports, when you read his stuff, they say that he's... Uh, he has a fine hockey sense, puck handling, sh and shooting with an aggressive, in-your-face type of game. So, he seems to be like a power forward uh, type player, um, and and he could be a, a, a good player for the Canucks in the future. I don't think, like, I, I know you read the lines, but I don't see him maybe making the team opening night just yet, or, and if he does, I don't know if he's necessarily ready, but... I think we'll see him. I think once he's in the league, he's there's no doubt that he's going to be a pretty good player for the Canucks, um, and and he'll be um, and, and he'll he'll make um, the Canucks happy for drafting him tenth overall in 2019. Yeah, Puck is one of those projects where like the Canucks knew he wasn't going to be ready right away, and he's going to need a bit of seasoning in the KHL and in the AHL before he was really going to make a positive impact on the Canucks. And looking at their roster and the way that's constructed, I don't really see a spot for him on the roster unless uh, injuries start to yep. pile up and they need to call up somebody. So he's a guy that I can see spending most of this year. In fact, all of this year, I think is the best route in the AHL with the uh, Canucks uh, farm system. Um, but just to take a look at some of the high-profile situations that he's been in, in the KHL, they don't usually let teenagers get a lot of ice time. Like, you have to be, like, elite cream of the crop at that age in order to get the kind of ice time that, I don't know, like, um, Kaprizov would probably get. Right. Um, it, they, that type of ice time doesn't just go to these teenagers very often. So when I see pointless in three games in 2018-19, and eight points in 30 games uh, in 2019-20, and 11 points in 35 games last year. I'm not really too concerned by that, given the fact that he probably wasn't given those high-leverage situations uh, to begin with. So I just look at, for the most part, uh, in his age group, what he was able to do. And you look at the under-18 Worlds, when he was captain in 2019, he had four points, uh, one goal in seven games. Uh, that same year, he played with the World Junior Team, uh, the uh, under-20s, and he had three assists in seven games. 2019-2020, uh, five points, uh, one goal in seven games as an assistant captain for the under-20 team uh, for Team Russia. And then last year at the World Juniors, he goes back as team captain, two goals, four points in seven games. So again, pretty good um, offensive production there. Then I start to look at the type of player that he is, how he's described. He's described as a skill winger that plays with an edge where he's always competing hard, tough player to play against. He also has the tools to be a high scoring player because he has the fine hockey sense that scouts look for. He's got good puck handling. Um, he shoots, his shooting selection is pretty good and he's always in your face. And I feel like that's the type of forward that the Canucks need. They need an in-your-face type of player 
that doesn't take no guff, that'll drive to the net. Uh, a factor that they haven't had the past couple of years because Michael Furlan's been hurt. Right. And Antoine Roussel and and guys of that mold don't really have the high-scoring upside that Puck Colson has. And I think that's what makes him so valuable as the 10th overall pick because they feel once he's ready to hit his full stride, we're going to have ourselves quite the hockey player. And uh, elite prospects, uh, based on the different scouting sources that they've had, they speak very highly of Puck Colson. I think it might take a year or two, but I definitely see him becoming a fixture on the Canucks, especially... Uh, once we get to the end of this year and Brock Besser, um, his contract expires, it'll be an interesting situation to see because, as we've talked about, they have a lot of uh, high-leverage contracts like Connor Garland and Thatcher Demko and now Hughes and Peterson on top of Oliver ekman Larson. Um, are they going to have the resources, the financial resources necessary to keep Brock Besser in Vancouver? I really don't know if they will. So if they end up moving on from Brock Besser after this year, all of a sudden that opens up the door for Pod Colson to really step in. And I think a very offensively dynamic uh, season in the AHL could kind of spearhead those conversations that, yeah, he might be a year into his North American professional hockey playing career, but we think he's ready for the NHL right now. Let's bring him in. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we'll, we'll probably see him in a couple of... I mean, we'll probably see him next year, but I, I think you're right. We'll see him more in Utica to start this year. And then, I don't know. I, I think it, it could be like a Trevor Zegers type situation where like he's just mm-hmm. too good uh, for the AHL and they just bring him up. But um, but yeah, I think there it is slightly concerning just to see that like, oh, he he like... Those are kind of disappointing numbers in the KHL, but but at the same time, it's like he, you know, like you see the stats in the playoffs, you see what he was able to do in the World Juniors, so you're like, okay, maybe there is something there. So so it's very possible that he's just going to be too good for Utica, and, and they just have to bring him up. But in which case, then it's like, okay, if you bring him up now, you have Brock Besser, and then you have Connor Garland, and there's no way that like he's going to be in the top six. So then it's like, what's the point of even bringing him up if you're um, for right wingers? So yeah, you, you, I, I guess it's an interesting situation because because um, now it's like you have your two, you have two right wingers who are pretty good. Um, I I guess there is a chance that like you know Garland. Uh, won't be able to help out, so maybe it's like an insurance policy in case Garland isn't good, but we'll we'll see. Um, There's also the other part that I was talking about when it comes to uh, Paul Colson and the situations that he's been put in, yeah. in like uh, the under-18s and the under-20s with Russia. Like, as I mentioned, there were situations where he was assistant captain and other situations where he was team captain. Yeah. So that leadership also provides that extra bit of okay, they're putting him in these situations and they're trusting him to be a leader on that team. That right. says a lot. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so then the second a wild card one is actually the Canucks' first pick in the 2021 draft. Um, he's the second round pick. Um, it was a bit of a shocker when uh, he was selected, but it's, uh, but it's mostly just because no one has ever really heard of this guy before they picked him, uh, but it's Danila Klimovich. Um, a big reason why no one's heard of him is because he's a Belarusian. Um, I think that's how you pr- 
pronounce people from yep. Belarus, uh, Belarusian, Belarusian, yep. Belarusian. Um, but, uh, so when you look into his stats, um, so I, I guess from, from how I understand this, a Belarus Vishaya is the one, is the league below the Belarus league. Um, and he played for the, um, um, this, uh, he played for a team, um, in that league, um, I, I definitely mispronounced that that saying, by the way. Um, and he had 52 points in 30, uh, 37 games. Um, and then in the playoffs, he had 14 points in 12 games. So that, that must mean that he's pretty good. Um, and then he also had, uh, he played in the World Juniors under-18s for Belarus, where he had six goals in five games. Um, so so that's that's pretty good. Uh, the thing that kind of um, that I, I keep on hearing his name though, uh, mostly because a couple of the scouts I follow on Twitter are Canucks fans, so they're they're kind of excited about this. But also, um, I don't know if you realize this, but yesterday the uh, Jim Benning announced uh, the preseason roster, and he cut and he just put it by sixteen players, and Klimovich who signed an entry-level contract a couple of weeks ago, he hasn't been sent down yet. Um, he's uh, he's still uh, being considered for their their opening day roster, and it's kind of interesting. And then when you, like, look on Twitter, you see, like, he's doing, like, highlight real stuff. I'm talking, like, Elias Pettersson-type things. And, like, you're like, okay, this guy may end up being pretty good. Um, but it, it may end up being like, okay, he'll eventually be cut and all that stuff. But, um, it looks like, you know, he's just doing like highlight reels type stuff in practice and scrimmages. So it's like, you know, obviously this is a, oh, like, um, I would imagine he'll be in Utica for, for this year and we'll see how he does. And I doubt he'll be sent up, but like it is kind of like exciting to see like it, it like just the fact that he hasn't even been cut yet from the opening day roster just shows how much the Canucks are excited about this guy and, and believe in him even though he was a second round pick and and something like that so they may end up getting a steal for him if he ends up panning out of course i mean that's that's an obvious thing to say but uh looks like he could be pretty good yeah, so taking a look at um, his frame, because uh, we, we mentioned Buck Olsen and the hype to his game. Yeah. Buck Olsen's 6'4". This right. guy's not nearly as tall as Buck Olsen, but he's still 6'1 and weighs 203 pounds. Mm -hmm. Doesn't even turn 19 until January, Brett. So mm -hmm. for 18 years old, uh, 6'1", 203 pounds, there's room to grow there. So already a big presence there. Um, a type of guy that's always moving, um, someone who plays the game in between the dots as much as he can. And again, here's the key, hard, violent energy. That's what this guy runs on when he's on the ice. So we're looking at another high energy player that has offensive potential. So I don't really think it could be a situation where this guy is a projected top six forward like Pug Olsen is, let's say. But I can definitely see a scenario where he's a solid contributing bottom six forward for the Canucks. Because as those guys start to age, as we start to see Brandon Sutter age, um, a, a lot of the other guys uh, getting into their late 20s, early 30s, guys like Jason Dickinson, for example, who they just got from Dallas, um, they're going to need these young 
bottom six forwards, and perhaps this guy Klimovich uh, is going to fit that bill someday for Vancouver, and uh, that's yep. good to have. I will say he he does have a really cool name, so he has that going yeah. for him. <laughs> that's that's the that's the bar I always set. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't I don't again like I I don't think he's going to uh, to make the opening day roster, but it's definitely someone to to keep an eye on for sure in, in the future, um, mm-hmm. and 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 maybe eventually we'll we'll see. It is interesting though that they you know the Canucks did give up their ninth overall pick. Uh, to Arizona, and that turned out to be Dylan Gunther, and that that has a potential that they um, they'll end up regretting that because Gunther may end up making the Arizona Coyotes team, but um, but yeah, I mean if if they end up getting like something out of this Klimovich guy, then it's like okay, this draft isn't like wasn't so so terrible and and things like that. So so maybe they they have something in this guy. We'll see. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, they uh, they added Dadanoff. Uh, they also added Nolan Patrick. Do we want to talk about the, what Robin Leonard said this week, or I, I guess uh, we can uh, maybe we'll, we'll we'll get to it if it gets starts to get even more serious. But I guess I'll yeah, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll show that we'll show that for another time because okay. I'm sure there. We'll shelve that another time because I'm sure there's going to be other layers that yeah, are yeah. added to it as as we move along. Fair. So uh, I will since, since I just mentioned it. I will. I'll just give a, a brief overview of what Leonard just said. But uh, he um, he basically said that uh, uh, he on Twitter he was uh, he as he does he uh, he's very outspoken. Probably the most outspoken NHL player. Um, Maybe ever. That's that's definitely possible. I, I'm trying to think of another one, but uh, definitely, definitely, definitely from our generation, yeah, I would say he's the most outspoken. Yeah, I, I can't even think of another outspoken NHL player because like it's it's just usually NHL players just stay quiet and and just keep with the status quo and, and stuff like that. But I think uh, Leonard's kind of like just saying that like, hey, uh, like. You know, we have personalities and, and all that stuff, and, and that's just a good thing. Uh, but anyways, on Twitter, he was uh, commenting because he was fully on uh, Jack Eichel's corner. Um, and so, like, that's not too surprising. They were teammates back in the day, um, and uh, he's he's kind of been, like, a big mental health person and feels like Jack Eichel deserves to uh, get that surgery. Um, so it's not... Too surprising that he had that opinion, and then um, and then a couple of hours later, he he mentioned something about uh, Benzo uh, that the NHL is over um, over diagnosing or over medicating players with benzodiazepines so that they can, which is like a pain painkillers um, and an Ambien. Um, so that the players can like recover uh, quicker, um, and that's not actually how you treat <laughs> those injuries. And um, and then there was a report that later, and then he called out um, Elaine Mignot, calls him a uh, dinosaur. Um, I, well, I wouldn't say he called out Vigneault by name, but like no, no, the, he, the said, he said he said Vigneault. No, he said Vigneault yeah, by from, name. Yeah, from the perceptions that 
we saw through his tweets, it sounded like he was taking shots at Vignon. Well, no, not, not, he did call him by name. Did, did he actually say Vignon in the tweet? He actually said Vignon in the tweet, yes. Okay, all right. Uh, so, but, and then, and then, uh, what we, the reason why, I, when I said Nolan Patrick, cause that would be the only, cause it's not like Lenner, um, ever has had any experience with Vigneault. They've never been on the same team. Um, so, so it's, um, and, and then like, you know, Nolan Patrick, who was on the Flyers, he goes to, um. He goes to Vegas, um, so it, you know, presumably Nolan Patrick is telling the t- the squad like, "Hey, uh, like the Flyers are you know doing some shady stuff, and they've been doing this." Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess that that was just like maybe that's what Leonard was doing was because Nolan Patrick was like telling them that like this is what they were doing in Philadelphia. But uh, it does seem like there's a, this is a developing story. Um, apparently, the NHL is uh, going to talk to him sometime this week. Um, but we'll see how that goes. It could be like... What's weird about that story is that it's just like... It could be like a cover-up for the NHL. Because, like, who knows um, how, how deep it goes. But, um, but, yeah. So, it looks like the NHL is going to look into it. But who knows how serious it's going to be. Um, and then, yeah, once once it gets more serious, then, yeah, we'll probably have devote a whole episode to it. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, getting back to the, the preview, I just wanted to, to do a summary there quickly. Um, so Nolan Patrick was added. We talked about that trade when it happened. Uh, they ended up, they also traded uh, Cody Glass away. Um, so, so, yeah, he's a part of the subtractions. Um, in terms of other subtractions, the Seattle pick, uh, Vegas was exempt from it, so they didn't uh, they didn't lose anyone to Vegas. However, they did lose um, their Vezina goalie in Mark Andre Fleury, um, and they only got back Michael Hakkarinen. Um, Michael Hakkarinen, I believe Hakarinian. is how it's pronounced, which yeah. is basically next to nothing considering, yep. again, Flurry is a proven goalie and a Vezina trophy. Right, right. So it, it is kind of crazy. I guess it's mostly just to do with the fact that they they don't have a ton of cap space. and they, It's a cap dump, yeah. Yeah, it was just a cap dump move. Um, they, <laughs> they, they, still, they still don't have any cap space, but I guess this was before the data and off uh, trade and... Um, they yeah. also traded They're away. They're now 2.74 so. million over the cap, by the way. Yeah. So, oh, oh. So they're 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 still over. They're still over, according to what I saw the last okay. check a couple days ago. They're still over. But I have here on Cap Friendly that they have 84. They have 84 million in, in, as a cap hit, but then their LTIR that's used is two million. Uh, so they okay. would. They would be under. Well, the cap, the, I believe the salary cap is eighty-one point five million. Okay. So even with the LTIR, I think they'd still be a bit over, unless they do some other things. Well, they okay. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. They they may end up doing some moves before and then. Um, but anyways, they also lost Ryan Reeves. They also lost Nick Holden. Um, I know uh, Steve thinks that uh, Ryan Reeves adds something to it, which I guess he does. He adds some toughness 
for the Golden Knights, and, and that's what they'll get in, in New York. But um, but probably not a huge loss there. Um, in terms of resignings, none, uh, just because they are almost over, as we were talking about. Um, not, not true. They kept Mar- they kept Alec Martinez around, and they also kept Matias Yanmark around. But outside of that, yeah. Oh, yeah, really. yeah, good point. I guess not, really. Um but um, but yeah, so let's let's go get right into their their prospects, because um, I I don't I, I mean unless you have anything else you want to say because we've already talked about all these other things. I'll, all these I'll other mention stories. it. I'll mention it briefly. Um, we all know Vegas is going to be the front runner. It would be a yep. failure if they didn't win the division this year. They still have Mark Stone as their captain. They have Alex Petrangelo leading the back end. Yep. They have Shea Theodore as well taking care of the offensive side of things. They also have young guys like um, Coughlin and Hag, uh, White Cloud on the back end that could uh, fill out some of the defensive holes uh, left by guys like, I don't know, Nick Holden. Um, so I think moving on from Holden, it's it's fine for them because they have those young defensive and that can help fill that void. And they also have Martinez there. Um, so that helps them. They still have Braden McNabb. For the most part, nothing's changed on the back end outside of um, Nick Holden uh, being traded uh, to Ottawa. Now, in terms of their offense, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, Dadanov factors into things. Um, how some of their younger prospects fit into the equation, what their fourth line looks like without Ryan Reeves. They still have Will Carrier, of course. Um, I, I think um, their, their top line is, is, is still going to be uh, one of the most underrated uh, in the league. Um, you have Marcheseau and Carlson there. Um, you, you also have Yanmar coming back. So what's his role going to be? Is he mostly going to be a third line guy? Um, do they keep uh, Stevenson, Stone, and Pacioretty, um as the second line and just continue to roll with that? A lot of things intrigue me about the Vegas situation, particularly down the middle, because down the middle, I really don't think they did much of anything to uh, help fill those voids. And I think a lot of people expected that they were going to get Jack Eichel, and that obviously hasn't transpired. Right. And uh, they also don't have Alex Tuck for the first couple months of the season because he had off-season surgery. So that hurts them a little bit. So hopefully Dadanov, and that's why he's going to be such a key contributor at the start, is because they're going to need his offense uh, to balance things out, particularly on the power play, because in the past he had been a pretty decent power play producer. And one of the Achilles heels for Vegas was their special teams, particularly the power play wasn't very Mm -hmm. good. So they need to improve upon that. That's not the biggest issue for me. My my issue with Vegas is, okay, they're probably going to win the division. They're definitely a playoff team by all accounts. They're the strongest team in this division. But beyond that, what are we going to expect from Vegas? Um, I think Leonard and Brassois are going to make a good tandem, but I think we need to think beyond what we see on the lineup chart, what we see beyond the chemistry is structurally – how is this team going to look? Because it's not like losing Ryan Reeves and Marc-Andre Fleury are going to kill this team. Like, they still have talent. They still have leadership. But I think there are some intangibles that they brought. Marc-Andre Fleury was a good dressing room guy. Um, Always made it fun to come to the rink every day. You knew what you were going to get every time he was on the ice. And 
formed a solid tandem with Robin Leonard, and you could go to any one of those two guys, and people expected you to get the W, and most often they did. With Ryan Reeves, he was the type of guy that always brought it every single night. Players hated to play against him because he was such a big body, because he would deliver these bone-crunching hits. And if you went after one of Vegas's guys, you had to be really clever about it because if Rob, if Ryan Reeves was um, within 10 feet of you, you know exactly where he was going, and that was right for your face. If the type of intimidating physical presence you do not want to mess with. Now that both of those things are gone, I feel like Vegas not only has lost some of its identity, but lost some of the leadership and the depth that made them successful. Ryan Reeves allowed the top nine to do their thing because if someone messed with the top nine, Ryan Reeves took note of that and put a target on you. And you would become his target for the rest of the night and it would just make you, it would make your night a living hell, basically. And Marc-Andre Fleury, again, with that stability that he brought between the pipes, now that that's gone, if there's an injury to Leonard or Brassois, all of a sudden, Vegas is put in a very difficult position of, oh, okay, who's going to stop pucks for us now? Because I really don't see anyone in the minor league system that really stands out to me that, okay, if there's a goalie injury, we're right. good because we have this guy waiting in the wings that can step in and make saves for us. Yeah. So those two aspects in particular, the losses of Reeves and Flurry, I'm interested to see how that affects Vegas because they're a team that's ready to win now that I think has to win now. And they can't really waste any more opportunities. They need to take advantage of the team that they have because it's not going to be around forever. And the salary cap situation, as we've shown, yep. no matter how many trades they make to mask it, eventually it's going to catch up to them. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. I guess the the loss of Fleury, um, you know, I think a, a big reason why the Golden Knights have been so good for of the last couple of years has been because they were able to have Leonard or Flurry, um, and those are like that was like the best goalie tandem in the league for the last two years. Um, I mean, I, I guess there's there's other guys maybe like Raskin and Halak, but um, or uh, there's probably another one that I'm not thinking of, but um, but yeah, I think there's so yeah, it will be interesting to see that. Uh, like how it moves once like Leonard has more of a role um, and if Bersois can handle more more starts because he didn't really get that when he was in Winnipeg so that that is a good good point there um, so in terms of prospects we have uh, Peyton Krebs he's our best prospect he um, he's kind of like been by far our, the best prospect for Vegas for uh, since he's been drafted um, this past year uh, he played for the Winnipeg Ice of the WHL, where he had 43 points in 24 games. So that's, I, I think that's pretty good. Um, that, that's um, Yeah, close to two points per yeah. game, I'd say that's yeah, yeah. Uh, exceptionally I, I, I good. I think that's pretty fact. good. Uh, he also played in the World Juniors, where he had, um, he also had more than a point per game uh, pace, where he had eight points in seven games, uh, uh, three goals and five assists uh, in just for the record, um, and then um, he also played a little bit in the for the Henderson Silver Knights, where he had uh, five points in five games, um, and then uh, he even played a little bit for the Vegas Golden Knights 
um, where he had uh, just one assist in four games. Um, and, you know, I, I think this is this is going to be, a, like, you know, the, one of the, other than goalies like we just talked about, I think, like, the biggest weakness that Vegas has um, is their center s- situation. Um, and, um, pay, like, yeah, of course, uh, um, what's his face? Uh, Chandler Stevenson did uh, pretty well um, last year um, as the center for Mark Stone. Um, but, uh, and William Carlson is, you know, he's decent, but, um, but if you can get this guy who's like, um, who is pretty, who's been pretty good in all, every league that he's been a part of, I, I think there's, there's a good chance that he'll be a pretty good pro. Um, what's interesting is, is he fell, um, to, uh, 17th overall in the 2019 draft, um, partially because he was injured for most of that time, his draft year. Um, but, but now it's, it seems like, okay, he's, he's no longer injured. Um, and, and he's proved that he's, he's, uh, capable and, um, and yeah, I, I think they ended up with another steal too. Although it's looking like 2019 may end up being like the craziest draft ever because that was the draft that had Zegris, Caulfield, uh, Pudholzen, Spencer Knight, um, Newhook, like a bunch of guys um, that were taken in the mid to uh, late rounds um, or, you know, mid to late first round picks. Um, so, um, but that, that's more of a talk about the 2019 draft overall. But yeah, I, I, I think um, I think this guy could be pretty good for the, for the Golden Knights, and it's in a good position because he's a center. He's in a good position to succeed there. Yeah. So the interesting thing about Peyton Krebs is, I I think part of the reason why they haven't made the trade for Jack Eichel like I'm sure a lot of people expected Vegas to do, and that's mostly because Vegas is one of those teams that likes to go big game gambling hunting in the off season. They always shock us with these off season trades that we don't necessarily expect. And they're not afraid to hit the home run. Um, The thing is, there's obviously a lot of unknowns with Jack Eichel, but there are a lot of knowns with Peyton Krebs. And I think they know that any significant trade that they make probably has the other team saying, okay, well, if we're going to do this trade, we want Peyton Krebs. Right. And Vegas is probably like, ah, no. Yeah. <laughs> we we want to keep Peyton Krebs and not trade him like we did Nick Suzuki and Eric Brandstrom and right. uh, Cody Glass. Um, and it's easy to see why. His uh, first full WHL season, he had 54 points in 67 games, 37 of those assists. So he's a pretty big playmaker. And he even played six games in the WHL before his full season. And in that uh, six-game span, he had a goal and five assists for six points. So even before his full campaign, he was already impressing uh, the Kootenai fans. Uh, His second full season, he is named captain, which you don't often see. Uh, He gets 68 points in 64 games, 49 of those being assists, 19 of those goals. Um, So still a playmaker, but can score um, the odd time. And uh, all of a sudden is a leader on the ice, not just one of the primary scores. Uh, so Kootenay moves to Winnipeg, 
and his first full season-ish with the Winnipeg Ice, which was cut down, obviously, by COVID and also by injury. In 38 games, he had 60 points, 48 assists. So if he plays the full season, we're looking at at least 100 points, um, maybe around, like, 25 to 30 goals, uh, which is pretty significant there. And then last year, as you mentioned, Brett, 43 points in, 23 ga- uh, in 24 games, 30 of those assists. Um, once again, being team captain uh, for Winnipeg. Um, so it seems like his WHL career has come to an end. He's ready to turn pro. Uh, he's already played some NHL games. He had an assist in four games last year with Vegas. In Henderson, the AHL, he played five games. He had a goal and four assists for a total of five points. Uh, great showing for Team Canada, the World Juniors, but also in the 2019 Under-18 uh, Championship with Team Canada, with him as captain, he had six goals in seven games and a total of 10 points. So whether whether it's just any hockey league that he's played in um, before turning pro, um, any major championship that he's played with Team Canada, this guy has always stepped up to the plate and he's always delivered. And it always goes back to his work ethic, not just his skill. No matter the circumstances, in all three zones, this guy doesn't take a shift off and he gives it 100% every single time. You know who that reminds me of? Mark Stone who is a leader on Vegas for a reason. And as you look through his elite prospects uh, profile and all of the positive things that you see about him, I think part of the reason why they're not making the Jack Eichel trade is because maybe he's not going to be as good as Jack Eichel offensively, but when we're looking down the line and we want that second line, third line center that can do just about everything and add a bit of offensive, a bit of an offensive presence, an offensively dynamic presence out there. Peyton Krebs can do a lot of great things for this hockey club, and we need to keep him and give him that chance to be successful. That's not to say he's going to be on the lineup right away. I think, again, similar to Pod Golson in Vancouver, I think you need to let him play a full season in the AHL unless the injuries start to pile up and you have no choice but to bring him up. But have him spend as much time yep. in the AHL as possible. Let him flourish as an NH- as an AHL player, and you move on from there and see what he's got at the big league level. But I definitely think in a couple of years he's going to be a crucial member of Vegas's top six because of his ability to play down the middle. If he doesn't, then you get another solid left winger, which could also help you in your salary cap situation because, as you know, they have a lot of money on uh, the wings at the moment. Yeah. For sure. I, I, I guess you're right. I think that is the way to go. Just just put him into the Henderson Silver Knights and see how he does. And then unless there's injuries like galore in, in the in the pro team, then it seems like he'll just stay in Henderson um, for a bit. Um, and then uh, speaking of uh, wild card prospects and, and things that he may, I guess he'll probably end up playing another year in Henderson. Uh, but uh, we talked about him last year, too, because I'm a big fan of this guy. Um, Jack Dugan um, is is the guy's name. He was um, The reason why I was a big fan of him was two years ago, he was the leading point scorer for uh, the NCAA, and I felt like no one was really talking about him because he had 52 points in 34 games for Providence. That year, and then this year, he uh, he also does pretty well. He has a pretty good, nice transition into the uh, the AHL. 
um, where he has 33 points in 37 games. Um, so that's also, also like Pennant and Krebs. I think that's pretty good too. Um, but, uh, yeah, so yeah, but, and that puts him 11th in, um, in the AHL, uh, for points, um, and things like that. Um, how, so, so yeah, it looks like he's, he's pretty good. I think the other thing is, is like Pete and Krebs, it seems like he's more of a playmaker than a goal scorer, which is fine. Um, you know, I guess they, you know, they, there's different amounts of, of people that can work with that. But, um, but yeah, it seems like, um, he's, he's getting going in Henderson Silver Knights and that can only mean that, you know, he, he could be ready. Um, although like Steve was alluding to, it seems like they're probably gonna, uh, I would imagine they're gonna still continue to, uh, develop him and, just move him to the Henderson for another year because, um, you know, they can. Um, he is 23 years old. He's from Pittsburgh. Um, and he's, I, I thought he was shorter because, like, I had assumed since he was, like, a fifth-round pick, like, that was a reason why he wasn't, um, you know, picked, drafted sooner. But, um, but no, he was, he's a six-foot-two. Um, I guess a big reason why he was drafted in the fifth round, though, was just because... Uh, he was in high school. Um, he was drafted out of high school, um, and then he goes to the Chicago Steel, and then he gets 66 points in 54 games for them, and then he goes to Providence for two years. Um, so, so maybe it it, was, it had more to do with the fact that he was drafted out of high school than the fact that his size or things like that. But yeah, I I'm excited for this guy. I don't think we'll see him this year though, but we'll probably see him next year. Yeah, and, and the thing uh, that you mentioned, uh, Brett, is the fact that uh, he was selected in high school. I definitely think yeah. that uh, factored into where he was selected. But in that high school year, he had like 80 points. So yeah. like a very good high school player, one of the most dynamic uh, high school players. Said here, 52 of those 80 points were assists. Um, so like you said, more of a playmaker there. And then he goes to the Chicago Steel, does very well, over a point-a-game player there, 60-plus points. And then 39 and 41, his first year with Providence. Then he had that big season where he led the NCAA in scoring in 34 games with 52 points, 42 assists. And then almost a point a game player in the AHL with Henderson, 33 and 37, 10 of those goals. So when I look at Jack Dugan, I look at a guy that every single league he's played in, he's made rapid progressions right away, um, which again is huge for a guy any size and definitely his size that uh, helps him out a little bit it also helps that he's a left winger and like i said they have a lot of uh money and term tied to the left wing side uh particularly with uh, jonathan marchiso um i think down the line it's not that jonathan marchiso is overstate his welcome in vegas but again the fact is they're in a cap situation so you're gonna need to look for efficient ways to remain consistently good as a team um, but and and still keep uh, the the level of NHL production going, and I think that's that's the key for Vegas is developing those prospects. So when you need to make those tough decisions, you're in good hands. Right. I think the plan is ideally for them is Peyton Krebs takes one of the center spots, whether it's the second line or the third line. Eventually, he's going to be that type of player, even the first line center. I think. He would be capable down the line of taking that role depending on his progression. 
And then you've got the likes of Jack Dugan as a primary left winger to slot in uh, in a first line, second line, third line capacity. And I think this uh, season, this upcoming season, the AHL is going to be key for him because it could really separate himself from the pack and really uh, rush Vegas's decision to make that uh, difficult decision of, okay, are we ready to move on from these top six regulars that we've had the past couple of years and give the keys to Jack Dugan in a top six role? If he really dominates in the AHL this year, that definitely bodes well for him. If he takes a step back, um, I'm not going to say it's the end of his time in Vegas, but it, it definitely delays um, the imp- the type of impact he could have with this organization. So um, obviously every year is an important year for a hockey player, but um, I think it would be instrumental for his development if he was able to make um, even bigger strides this year uh, in the AHL. Uh, just because of where Vegas is at and what they need out of their left wingers moving forward. I definitely think he could be a solid piece of their movement uh, beyond this year. Um, maybe he could get like 15 to 20 games and see what he's, what, what he's got in that role. Um, but I think for the most part, he'll be an, he'll be an AHL regular in Henderson. Right. Uh, yeah. Maybe just for another year. But yeah, he's um, an AHL regular for now. Um, okay, uh, now we're going to the Washington Capitals. Uh, they're another team that didn't really make too many additions. Technically, they did, like, you know, their Seattle pick, which was Vitek Vanacek. Uh, they ended up getting him back, but for a 2023 second round pick, um, that was from Winnipeg. Um, so, um, so yeah, they, they did, they did, that was like their only real addition that they had um but I'm putting that as an asterisk because they you know he played for them last year um and uh and then in terms of subtractions um Azarino Chara he uh he's going to the New York Islanders uh Henrik Lundqvist he retired um yeah, There's also Craig Anderson, never forget. Craig, Craig, Craig Anderson's Craig uh, handful of games he played right. for the Capitals. Brendan Dillon's also gone. Um, mm-hmm. I'm seeing because uh, the, the Capitals ended up getting a 2022 second round pick and a 2023 second round pick for them. Um, and then one of those, the 2023 second round pick ended up uh, going to Seattle to get the Vanacek. Um, mm-hmm. so, so there's that. But... Um, yeah, I, I um, yeah, they didn't really make so many moves, I guess, um, mostly because they had to re-sign Ovechkin. Um, this was, I guess, this was the obvious one. It was just more of a question of like, how much is he is Ovechkin gonna get, and um, and how long? Um, and he's he has five years, uh, nine point five million, uh, still kind of a lot for a thirty-five year old. But at the same time, Alex Ovechkin's been the best player for the last, like, two years. Uh, two decades. Sorry, not two years. Two decades. So it's like, yeah, he's he's probably not going to live up to that contract. But at the same time, it's Alex Ovechkin. It's like, you can't, you can't not sign him to uh, whatever he wants. Um, and uh, so it, it makes sense that he's still on the team. Um, and I guess he, he's close to getting that, uh, all-time goals lead. Um, and if he's going to do it, he's going to do it in the Washington Capitals, 
um, uniform, and and we'll see if he can do it. It should be kind of like, it could be kind of like a fun little thing whenever you're watching Capitals games of like watching if Alex Ovechkin can can reach that all-time goals record. Um, I think he could he could do it, but I think he has to have like 40 goals seasons for the the rest of his contract, uh, which which might be tough because um, he'll be like 40 by the end of this. And I think with Alex Ovechkin, you look at his career numbers, and for the most part, they've been relatively consistent. Yeah. Obviously, he's not getting like 50 to 60 goals like he would like yep. in it in the in the stages before the prime of his career. But I mean, getting a 30-plus goal season out of someone that's, like, entering their mid-30s, that's not nothing at all. Like, mm. that that's actually tremendous. You don't see that in the NHL very often. A pure goal scorer that can still be effective from the same slot he was, like, 10, 11, 12 years ago. Like, for years he's been mastering this shot, and the goalie still can't find a way to stop it because he's so good, because he's so lethal, because he's so been so consistent um with his uh with his training and and all that stuff but eventually father time catches up with people father time's undefeated you can't stop it eventually it catches up with you except for tom brady yeah (laughs) yeah tom brady is um is one of the rarest specimens on earth you don't see too many like him right but um I, I think you could argue, uh, in the case of Tom Brady, in the case of Alex Ovechkin, you need some of those uh, setup guys, the right supporting cast in front of you, uh, in order to continue to cheat father time. And Ovechkin's been able to do that because you have guys like Nicholas Backstrom setting him off all the time. You also have Evgeny Kuznetsov. Uh, and then you also have... Um, role players like Anthony Mantha and TJ Oshie and Tom Wilson are contributing in their own way, which is huge. But those role players, I think more than anything, are going to be playing a big role for the Caps moving forward because eventually when Father Time catches up with Alex Ovechkin, then those goals from Anthony Mantha become more significant. Uh, same with TJ Oshie, same with Tom Wilson. Kuznetsov and Backstrom, yeah, they'll score the odd goal, but they're more setup guys. Um, and those supporting guys are pretty much the guys I'm going to focus on, particularly with Kuznetsov, because I think there are a lot of people who expected with all of the trades and all of the moving of pieces in the offseason, they thought surely the Caps have grown tired with Kuznetsov, his inconsistencies on the ice, off the ice, um, putting his team in a bad spot on occasion. Uh, surely they've had enough and they're going to make a trade and trade him out of there. And that didn't materialize. He's still on the Capitals. So how much uh, how much uh, real estate uh, on the racetrack does he have left yep. is the question that I'm wondering. Uh, for Anthony Mantha, as a secondary scorer, what's he going to do? Is he going to get 30-plus uh, goals? Maybe he uh, improves his game and he gets 40-plus goals. Now that he's on a good team with the Caps uh, that has a lethal power play to work with, uh, what's his ceiling going to be? We never really got to see that in Detroit, but we're about to see it now. We're we're, um, we're we're looking for that prime Anthony Mantha who can excel in all situations. And uh, we haven't really gotten a chance to see that over a full slate of 82 games. Yep. This is the closest thing that we're going to see to that. I'm interested to see what he can do. Uh, TJ Oshie, I think, is going to be as key to goal scoring as Daniel Sprong and Connor Sheary are. Those are the type of guys that I think 
make the Capitals a better team because everyone's expecting Ovechkin to score. Everyone's expecting Mantha to score. Everyone's expecting Kuznetsov and Backstrom to set them up. But guys like TJ Oshie and Connor Sheary and Daniel Sprong were able to deliver in those uh, in those uh, late-game, big-game moments in the past and really offer uh, some top-nine depth scoring. And that can't be underestimated because the Capitals, now they're going to be going up against a Philadelphia Flyers team that added some pieces in the offseason. They're going to be an even tougher team to beat now. Pittsburgh's still there. You have the Rangers with Gallant behind the bench and all of those additions and all of those guys mm-hmm. they still have that are going to be tough to contain. It's going to be a tough division. So those depth guys are going to be relied upon heavily to deliver. Can they deliver? And I think more important than anything else, how big of a distraction is Tom Wilson going to be? I get that Tom Wilson's a good player. He's an effective player. He's a guy that can really get teams riled up and off their focus. And that helps the Capitals focus on their game a lot. But I think we're starting to get to the point where that dynamic ability to piss people off and score goals, I think the ability to put um, teams in other spots is going to have that recoil effect on the caps where now Tom Wilson's he had a reputation before, but now after the incident with the Rangers, he's got the notorious reputation of the rest where it's just like, man, anything this guy does, if someone said Tom Wilson bit their finger, we're probably going to believe it Yep, because, because of the antics that Wilson has been up to. And we're not going to take any chances with this guy. So there's a lot less freeway that Tom Wilson has um, to the point where, um, it will hinder the Capitals in a lot of ways if he's not on the ice. So he needs to pick his battles a bit more. He needs to really think, okay, if I make this hit, is the recoil effect going to be worse than the hit itself? Yep. If I give this goalie a snow shower, is my team going to be in a five-on-three scenario? Or am I going to get away with it and my team gets a two-minute power play to work with and Ovechkin can do his thing? There's not going to be as much leeway with Tom Wilson as there was in the past. So I think if Tom Wilson can pick those battles and decide when to do those things and to be effective, then that's going to help out Washington. But my fear is that if he's not able to use those selective decisions well enough um, I think it could put the Capitals in some bad situations and they'll be giving up yep. some points on the board that I think down the line in this division could come back to bite them because everything is so close. The games are even more magnified than they were in the past because you're playing teams outside of your division and you're going to be seeing the likes of Florida a bit yep. more and Tampa Bay and Toronto. And, and those guys have the potential to absolutely bury you offensively on the power play if you give them the chance to do so. So Tom Wilson needs to be aware of those circumstances and really start tightening up from a discipline perspective. So this, he can't keep getting away with it. Well, here's the thing. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, Tom Wilson could get away with murder, pretty much. He could murder a guy mm-hmm. on on ice, and the Washington Capitals would do nothing about it. Um, the NHL probably would, but 
the Washington Capitals always support him, uh, no matter how dirty his hits are, uh, no matter how much of a goon he is on the ice. So I don't think there's any worry for him in terms of like turning it off a notch because he's not going to do that. Um, he's going to continue. Like I can guarantee you that there's going to be some some incident this year where he's going to probably injure a person, end their career, and the Capitals are going to just willfully ignore it. Um, so just because he can score goals every now and then. So. So yeah, I don't think I don't think you have to worry about that in terms of like he's he's not going to turn it down a notch. I mean, I guess you do have to worry about it, but like he he's not just it's just I I've given up on him ever changing his his tune. Um, I don't think he's ever gonna change. Um, so so that it just is what it is, you know. So we'll see. Um, in terms I, of, I definitely think the NHL needs to tighten up their yep. style of play, but as a team, if he starts costing me games and starts pissing off the captain, in this case, he'll bet yeah. then it becomes a problem. But if because he's now not, you're hurting your team. Right, they, but they, they'll support you if it doesn't thing. hurt you. But that's the thing. He, like... Like, they all love him. Alex Ovechkin loves this guy. It's He's never going to piss Alex Ovechkin off. It's not going to happen. Um, uh, but uh, but anyways, that we're, we're talking about a hypothetical situation, and we'll talk about it when that happens, because it's going to happen. Um, in terms of re-signings, another re-signing that we should also mention before we get into the prospects... Um, Ilya Samsonov, he signs one year, two million. Um, this was an uh, I thought th- this was kind of an under radar type signing because I, I didn't even realize that they signed um, until <laughs> until I was looking here on uh, Cap Friendly. Yeah, so two million were a uh, one year. Um, I, I think like during the Seattle expansion draft, there was um, you know there was kind of like a, a figure of like okay. Vitek Vanacek ended up outplaying Samsonov, but Samsonov has been kind of groomed to be the goaltender of the future. So if like if you expose Samsonov, like are you like and as good as Vanacek was, it's like you know do you really want to do that because Samsonov has been like you know he he was decent in the in the playoffs. Um, but he was also kind of inconsistent at the same time. Um, and then you have Vanacek where, uh, yeah, he was pretty good this season, but at the same token, that's like, you know, it's been, it was by far his best season. So it's like, you know, who, who do you get? And so they kind of lucked out that they ended up getting Vanacek back. Um, but, uh, yes. So Sam Sonoff gets a 2 million a year, uh, for one year, they're both uh, both Vanacek and Samsonov are both RFA's uh, this coming year, um, so that's the good news where you can kind of like reset what uh, how you sign these guys. But um, but yeah, I, I think uh, this is um, this was a good deal for for them just to see, like it's a nice little like bridge deal for sure for both of them. Yeah, the thing with the goaltending that I'm really interested. To- to, to look at this year and it's and it's noteworthy um, about the Samsonov signing and the decision to go get Vanacek back after Seattle caught him which I don't think happens if Seattle doesn't get Grubauer if, if Seattle doesn't get Grubauer 
uh, who also played for the Cavs once upon a time and won a Stanley Cup with him, actually. Um, I, I think if a Grubauer doesn't go to Seattle, they the Vanacek trade doesn't happen because Seattle doesn't want to part ways with him. Um, but obviously the circumstances play out like they did, and the Capitals were fortunate uh, to get their goalie back. The one thing Vanacek and Samsonov were able to do um, in the past year or so is show that they can play NHL hockey and get wins at a high level, which is great. Now I want to see one of them really take the reins and showcase that they're the legit number one goalie and they're the guy you want to go into a playoff series with and feel comfortable and say, okay, we're in good hands here. Um, That didn't really happen uh, last year with Samsonov. I don't think he separated himself. Uh, Vanacek obviously had a good start to the year, but in the second half slowly started to fade away a little bit. um, And that kind of showed up in the first round again uh, in this series with the Bruins. Um, the fact that they weren't bringing in a veteran goalie like a Craig Anderson or someone else to help shore up their goaltending um, is also further proof that they're fine with Samsonov and Vanacek as their tandem. And the fact that they didn't go out and get a free agent goalie to help them out um, for when there were a lot of goalies available to do that, um, I think also further backs up their claim that we're fine with this goaltending tandem. So now it's up to the goalies to show up and prove to everyone that moving forward, that they belong in the NHL and they belong with the Washington Capitals. Right. Yeah. I I guess it's like a, it was a nice prove it deal. We'll see how, how that goes. Yeah. Um, Okay. In terms of prospects, um, this was another one where I needed kind of some help, deciding although it seems like Steve you were pretty set on McMichael being the prospect the best prospect which is which is fair and that's what we ended up doing but I do want to mention Hendricks LaPierre uh because like Peyton Krebs he was injured like a big reason why he fell in the draft was because he was injured for during his draft year but he was still like you know picked 22nd overall um in the 2020 draft. So he like, he was still, he was still pretty good. Um, and then this past year he had 31 points in 21 games. Um, and then in the playoffs, he had 12 points in nine games. So, uh, for the Chikutami Saguinins, um, so, so that I, I, I think it, it's like, uh, kind of like a Peyton Krebs situation. It, it seems like he's, um, at least he he's good when he's healthy, um, and and we'll see, it, it seems like he's going to play another year in the QMJHL for the Caddy Bathurst Tetons, um, so we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, but uh, Connor McMichael is actually our player because uh, he seems to be more NHL ready, um, and he had uh, 27 points in 33 games. Um, in the uh, HL for the Hershey Bears, um, he also played for Team Canada, where he had eight po- uh, for the under uh, the World Juniors under twenties, um, and he had uh, eight points in seven games. Um, so that that's a that's a pretty good stat line for both of them. He also played one game in the NHL for the Capitals. Uh, didn't get any points there though. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it, it's I was you know there. You were talking about Kuznetsov and getting traded and things like that. 
Um, the thing that's, that's interesting about the Capitals and their situation is they have a lot of players that are um, making a lot of money, but for like four years or more. Uh, Ovechkin, Backstrom, Kuznetsov, and Oshie. Then you have Mantha and Tom Wilson uh, with three years left on their contract. Uh, then you have um, Lars Eller, Haglin, uh, Hathaway, and Shiri uh, with two years left on their contract. So, so that's like a lot of players, but um, it's not like which is which is fine. Um, but you don't have like a ton of wiggle room to promote guys or demote guys which isn't a huge deal for the Capitals since their prospect pool isn't necessarily that great. But on the same token, like when you have a guy like Connor McMichael who could add some value and might be better than Kuznetsov is at this point, um, like it, it makes it harder to, uh, to bring him up on uh, or promote him or, or demote him. So, I do wonder if maybe Kuznetsov does get traded sometime just so that, like, because it feels like Connor McMichael is ready, um, and maybe we'll, we'll end up seeing him this year, but, but I guess at the same token, maybe they just, they just want to keep him in Hershey for another year, um, but, but yeah, I don't, like, they have some weird cap situations where, like, they should have a trade set where they, they can just easily put in McMichael into the roster, but I, I feel like they have to make some room for him. Yeah, I think the McMichael situation, it's not going to be a situation where he's a consistent NHL player this year. Maybe next year in the or the year after that, I can definitely see it happening. Um, and his, his stats in the OHL are pretty evident. His second full season, he had 36 goals and 72 points in 67 mm. games. Then went off for 47 goals, 102 points in 52 games with the London Knights, who are always very good. I don't know if anyone knows that. They're the cream of the crop when it right. comes to developing OHL talent that make NHL bounce, uh, NHL leaps, rather. Um, and he hasn't made the NHL leap. Like you said, only one game played and no points in that game. But uh, nearly a point-a-game player in the AHL with 14 goals in 33 games, that that definitely says a lot, especially in a very weird AHL pandemic season. I think those are pretty good numbers for Michael, for McMichael, and he needs to expand upon that in the AHL level. I think another year of seasoning would do him a lot of good. But you, it's obviously different because it's one thing uh, to be thrusted into like a first line or a second line a slot on the wing if you have the right uh, amount of pieces on the other sides, uh, particularly down the middle, uh, in order to be successful. With Michael, it's a bit different because, like Backstrom and Kuznetsov, he's a center. So you you have to do more than just be in the right places and score goals and rack up the points. Uh, you also have to win face-offs. You need to work on the two-way aspect of your game, which... Uh, McMichael's already good at and will probably continue to elevate his defensive game even further. Um, so the fact that he's a solid two-way center or, or certainly has that potential to be one uh, helps him out a lot. But you still need to work at your craft and really own it. And that's not a situation that takes like just a year or two of development and boom, you're in that role and you can excel. It, it, it takes um, a lot of dedication uh, to that craft in order to 
really be a positive influence on your team. So that's the interesting situation with McMichael. I definitely think uh, with the cap situation starting to add up, especially when it comes time to pay guys like Ilya Samsonov uh, their first big boy contract, um, at that point, then you start to look at guys like Kuznetsov and Oshi and think, okay, um, who do we keep and who do we trade away? Um, so I think um, the next year for Conrad Michael is going to be a huge uh, factor in where the Caps go from here on that regard. I mostly said about the the Kuznetsov stuff and why the Caps should trade him. It was mostly a case of the fact that in key moments, I don't feel like he was really there for his team. He wasn't delivering as often as he should. It had nothing to do with whether or not Connor McMichael was ready to go. And I think the fact that the Caps haven't traded Kuznetsov yet is an indication that they want to see where McMichael's development is at before they make that decision. Because they're, they're, they, I feel they still have a, um, a chance to win the Stanley Cup with this group. And they don't want to really move away from any parts unless they know for a fact that the pieces they're bringing in can do the job that the pieces that they're giving away can do. So I don't really think that McMichael's at that level where they can put him into a second-line slot and be totally okay with it. So until that happens, um, it could be a case where they just take their chances with Kuznetsov and hope things work out. Um, But I definitely can see him being a top six center for the Capitals um, when his development is ended and he's ready to play in the NHL yeah. full-time. Yeah, I guess the reason why I, f- I feel like he's ready now is just because all these scouts, all these scouting reports that I see, it's like, oh, yeah, he, he like, they, you should expect to see him this year um, in a full-time role. So, so maybe <laughs> they know something that we don't, but... Uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I guess there is a benefit to just uh, keeping him um, in the minors, but then, you know, and, and we'll see, like, the development of Kuznetsov. It's like, but I don't know. It seems like Kuznetsov is, like, has been on the trade block for a while now, so it's just like, okay, that's another reason to, to trade Kuznetsov so you can, you have this guy like McMichael who is ready now um, and you can do it that way. But yeah, I guess there is a way to just like give them a sh- insurance, uh, you know, an insurance policy of like, you know, having consents off there just in case like Michael isn't ready. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, this wild card is technically, this is like, he's kind of a wild card, but he's also, uh, he's not really talked as much, but he's, uh, he was the first round pick. Um, in 2018, 31st overall, so that was the year that the Capitals ended up winning the Stanley Cup. But uh, he was, uh, it's Alexander Alexiev. Um, and I think the reason why, the, a big reason why I decided to, to pick him was because he's a defenseman. Um, and he's clearly the, the best defenseman in the system um, and all that stuff. And then when you look at... Washington's defensive side of things. You have John Carlson, who's still pretty good. You have uh, Dmitry Orlov, who's underrated. Uh, Justin Schultz, also underrated. Um, Nick Jensen, Michael Kempney, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, and Matt Irwin. Uh, do you? I. You may be looking at their cap friendly page, but uh, other than being Caps defensemen, do you know what else they have in common, Steve? 
Uh, they have a lot of Russians. Well, yes. Well, okay. Yeah, that, that is also true. But I was actually going for the fact that they're all over 30. They're either 30 years old or they're 31 years old. Or uh, mm. Matt Irwin, who's 33 years old. Um, <laughs> Alexiev, he's uh, 21 years old. So he's about 10 years younger than most of these guys. Um, and it seems like, you know, a lot like... Um, uh, what's his face? Uh, McMichael, um, Alexiev might also be ready too, right away. And he's been in Hershey for uh, two years now. Um, but uh, but yeah, we'll see. Uh, he uh, so this past year he went. Uh, he was on loan in the KHL uh, where he had 16 points in 55 games. Uh, he also played in the playoffs for he had where he had one assist in nine games. Uh, in the KHL, um, and then he went back to the Hershey Bears, where he had nine points in twelve games. Uh, the year before that, he also played for the Hershey Bears the entire time, where he had twenty-one points in fifty-eight games, uh, which isn't too bad. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I, like I was mentioning, like he may not end up being like like a, the next Kale McCarr or something like that, but. He does have that, um, like, you know, just because the defense of side of things are pretty old, um, like, you know, the, the Capitals could use some, some youth into their lineup and Alexiev could be that guy. If it's not McMichael, I can understand from base of what you're saying that I can understand why McMichael may end up playing another year in Hershey. But, like, Alexiev seems to be already now, um, and he could, you know, maybe they, they add some youth to uh, the defensive side of things. Yeah, and you, you look at um, the defensemen uh, with uncertain futures. Obviously, Brendan Dillon, they traded away, but Justin Schultz is coming up uh, towards the end of his short-term deal that he signed with the Capitals and they don't have Zidane Chair on the back end uh, anymore. So now you bring in the likes of Matt Irwin and Dylan McElrath, who are probably going to be like third-pairing defensemen. So, uh, well, that's I think that's what their ceiling is going to be, is third-pairing defensemen. So now you are relying on these young prospects to carry the weight when they're ready to go. And the Caps don't really have too many of those um, grade A prospects or even grade B prospects uh, in their system. I would put them in the bottom 10 of NHL prospect pools right now, um, which puts all the more pressure on McMichael and Alexiev to succeed because you still are in the situation of like Washington or Pittsburgh where the core of your team is still got some good years left in them. So you want to take advantage of the good years they have left and make the most out of them. Um, and so now it all comes down to whether or not the defense, uh, the depth guys offensively and defensively have what it takes uh, to do their part to make that team as good as it needs to be to go on another deep playoff run. And Alexiev is one of those players for Washington that's going to be expected to do that, I think. Um, and as we mentioned uh, before, the pandemic season uh, has been a very weird one. But last year, when I look at his KHL numbers, 16 points in 55 games for a defenseman, that's pretty good. 
nine points in 12 games in the AHL, uh, that's pretty good. It's improving upon the numbers that he had uh, with Hershey last year when he had 21 points. He did that in 58 games. So to be near a point per game in his limited AHL action last year is a good sign. And even in his WHL days, in his time there, three seasons with Red Deer, he didn't play more than 50 games in a season. He played 41 his rookie year, uh, 45 his second year, and he had 37 points there. And then uh, his best showing ever in 2018-19, he had 43 points and 10 goals. He did that in just 49 games. So my hope is that when he is ready to be an NHL regular, which could be as soon as this year, definitely next year when Justin uh, when Justin Schultz's contract is up and maybe they decide not to renew it, um, you could see this guy in a second-pairing situation. I think he would be a second-pairing defenseman. I don't think you give him the first-pairing minutes right away. But I can definitely see a scenario where he could get uh, second-pairing minutes, especially depending on where Nicholas Jensen slots in and Michael Kempney, who's been injury-prone in recent years, uh, slots in. Because that's been the other part of their defense. Uh, some of their supporting cast members um, either haven't performed to the capabilities um, that people expect of them, or they've been hurt by injuries. I think Orlov's um, fit uh, the bill I think for the most part uh, that John Carlson has done the same. But when it comes to the likes of Justin Schultz and Michael Kempney, that could that could put the Caps in a sink or swim situation defensively. So now it becomes uh, the task for Alexiev to um, bring his style of play into the mix and be what the team needs him to be. If it's a two-way defenseman, then he needs to be a two-way defenseman. If it's get some power play points behind John Carlson, then play on the secondary unit and do your job and be what that secondary power play unit needs to be successful. Um, so so that, those are the things that I'm looking at when I look at Alexiev and his NHL future with the Caps is he's going to need to be whatever the Caps are looking for. And I don't think it's going to be a primary point producer. Uh, they're not going to be in that position, but um, they are going to be expecting a lot out of him uh, when he is ready to make that step. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it seems like he, you know, he does have some point. It's still, it's not like he's going to be like a point producer, like you know, like Kale McCarr or Quinn Hughes or something like that. But uh, he does. I, I think I've seen that he's like he has some defensive, like he he's good at the shutdown part of the game as well so he could be like a good two-way guy that he could occasionally score you some points but he's also not gonna like hurt you by um losing you any points because he uh he can help on the defensive side of things for for sure mm-hmm. um all right so now we're on to our last team um finally last but not least um the winnipeg jets um, what's interesting in terms of their additions, and I was just looking at like their trading, like all the trades that they've made this summer. Um, all, th- all they've made three trades this summer, and the three trades were on teams that we just talked about. Um, so they acquired Nate Schmidt for a 2022 third round pick. They acquired Brendan Dillon um, from the Capitals. 
uh, for a second round pick and a twenty a twenty two second round pick and a twenty three second round pick, and then they also acquired Jordy Ben um, at the draft um, for a uh, twenty twenty one six round pick, which turned into Connor Lockhart. Um, so, so those were, have been kind of like the big ads that they had. Um, and then in terms of like free agency, I guess there's like Riley Nash, um, but. Um, yeah, that seems to be about it in terms of, like, uh, noteworthy guys um, in terms of who they signed it. But, yeah, they, they kind of were low-key. They didn't really do too much. But, I don't know, Nate Schmidt may end up being a, a decent pairing for him. That He was uh, he was good in Vegas, but, um, but yeah, he, he didn't really end up doing so hot in... Um, in Vancouver, and uh, to the point where they decided to trade him um, in his first year, and, and now he's in Winnipeg. Um, so yeah, I, I guess it could be a, a decent um, ad for, for Winnipeg, and we'll see. It might be better than the guy that the Bruins uh, ended up getting, uh, Dylan DeMello, right? No, wait, no, that's not right. Um, it was uh, uh, Forbert. Derek Forbert was the guy that Bruins yeah, yeah. got. Dylan yeah, yeah. DeMello is the guy that's still on so, the So Schmidt's, Schmidt's better than Forbert. Um, so <laughs> we'll see about that. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that could be a, a good ad for them. And we'll see. But, um, but yeah, it, it is. I don't. I don't know if you take too much stock into the fact that he wasn't so good in Vancouver, um, but maybe he'll be used better in Winnipeg. We'll see. Yeah, one of the things that um, Winnipeg needed was defensive depth. It's mm -hmm. something that they've struggled to get since uh, Bufflin and Truba left, and Ben Sherrod as well, um, and Tyler Myers is uh, like those are like four big names right there that uh, were key to Winnipeg's yep. success. Um, and I think when you consider uh, what they had to deal with last year, they did all right. But in order to really contend in this highly, hotly contested division where you have Colorado and St. Louis that's still, that still thinks they can do something, same with Dallas, same with Nashville, um, and Chicago where you don't really know what to expect, um, for, for the most part, there are, there are no easy outs um, in the Central. So for Winnipeg, improving on defense was paramount. And it might have cost them Laurent Rossois between uh, the pipes as a, an insulator for Connor Hellebuck, but you look at a guy like Nate Schmidt that can play either the left side or the right side, um, and Nathan Bolio can do the same. They still have him. Uh, you have Josh Morrissey as the primary left-handed shot. Um, so whether Schmidt is behind him or beside him, really doesn't matter uh, they get uh, some some uh, good secondary insulation there uh, you have Neil Pionk who uh, re-upped for four years at a pretty decent price and he's been their primary offensive defenseman so in terms of primary defenseman he's the best right-handed shot they have you have uh, Brendan Dillon who can offer some good insulation behind Morrissey as a left-handed shot so that gives you freedom to put Nate Schmidt on the right side if you wanted to you have DeMello on the right side, so that's uh, further insulation uh, behind Nate Schmidt. Um, and then Logan Stanley, who I think at times looked pretty good in the playoffs last year with the Jets, uh, he's um, a decent third-pairing left-handed shot uh, with the potential to 
offer more if he continues uh, to improve his game at the big league level. And then you also have the likes of Vili Hainola, who in the yep. prospect system kind of like headlines the the wave of up-and-coming defensemen in the National Hockey League. And in the time that he played uh, the past year or so, he's looked pretty good. He hasn't really excelled, but, like, mm. he hasn't looked out of place either. No. He's He's been what the Jets needed him to be. And that's part of the reason why moving on from Sammy Niku was easier for the Jets to do because they knew, it's okay, we got Vili Hainola, we've got these guys coming in, we don't really need Sammy Niku in the fold anymore yep. because our blue line situation is more set in stone than it was last year. So I'm interested to see how their blue line holds up over the course of an 82-game schedule. I certainly think it's better than last year's blue line. How much better is the question. Right, right, for sure. Um, you kind of spoiled a little bit um, <laughs> what we're about to talk about, but that's okay. Uh, subtractions... Uh, uh, Mason Appleton, it was the Seattle pick. I actually think this is one that uh, Winnipeg will end up regretting because I think Appleton, yeah. um, he actually was pretty decent for uh, Winnipeg um, when when he was playing last year. But um, but I again, like Winnipeg has, you know, they have Ellers, uh, they have Wheeler, they have Connor. Uh, they're they're pretty good on the on the wing, but. Um, uh, and um, yeah, so so I I think they're they're fine, but it's it's still like you know they they may end up regretting that one. Sammy Niku, you just mentioned they lost, um, so <clears throat> that's that's another notable subtraction they had. Um, in terms of re-signings, uh, Neil Pionk is probably the biggest one. Uh, he signed a four-year deal uh, worth five point eight seven five million uh, per year. Uh, this was uh, a guy who, um, sorry, oh, I was just pulling up his stats. Um, he actually had um, he actually had thirty two points in fifty four games this past year. Um, so like, and then like you know, compared to all his other defensemen who got uh, who got paid this offseason, like Kale McCarr, uh, Quinn Hughes. Uh, uh, Seth Jones, Wierenski, all those guys. This is a not bad deal for for him, um, and I, I kind of like this deal because it's like you know five millions, not a whole lot, but it's it's still enough, and it, I think it it's um, it's a good deal for for the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah, uh, and and a guy that like I said, you needed power play production after Bufflin and uh, Truba left town. And a lot of people didn't really know what to expect from this guy. They felt, you know, in a Ranger system where they were more known for giveaways, um, there was more of a high risk, high reward uh, type of signing. But then since his arrival to Winnipeg, he he's looked like one of their best uh, offensive contributors, especially on special teams, which is huge for them because everyone talks about how good Mark Shifley and Kyle Connor and Nikolai Ehlers are in the power play and Patrick Liney when he was there is the exact same thing. Right. But on the blue line, that was their biggest Achilles heel. Now that they have Pionk in the mix and Morrissey is a good insulator, yep. um, I feel like a lot of those fears have been silenced because Pionk has really stepped up his game. And the fact that they were able to get him at such a team-friendly deal where the term isn't as high 
um, I think is a, is a very big win for Winnipeg um, because mostly because uh, they're going to bring Vili Hainola into the mix uh, within a couple of years. Yep. Um, and that'll be interesting to see at the next four years where Pionk fits into the defensive system, because at that point you'll have um, Hainola and like entering his, uh, I don't know, third NHL season um, and how he does in the first two years, I'm kind of interested to see how it affects the dynamic of Winnipeg's blue line and yeah. uh, where Pionk fits offensively. For sure. Yeah, it should be interesting to see how that goes. Um, and then in terms of uh, another re-signing um, that I thought was in, worth noting was uh, Andrew Kopp. Uh, yep. he's, uh, he had one year. Um, he signed for one year for $3.6 million. Um, yeah, he. I mean, we talked about like how Patrick Laine, um was traded, and then you know Pierre Luc Dubois, who kind of had a, a as equally as disappointing of a season as Patrick Laine did this year. But uh, Andrew Kopp was able to kind of fit right into the, the system to replace uh, Patrick Laine. Um and he had thirty nine points in uh, fifty five games, uh, which isn't too too shabby there. Um, so I, yeah, I also like this move too. It's like, you know, this, this was, uh, Andrew Kopp's breakout year, so to speak. And, um, and you know, you sign him for one year to see how, how he does Like, you know, it's kind of a prove it contract and we'll see how that goes. But, um, but yeah, I, I kind of like that. And, and, you know, he, it seems like he's going to still be on the top six and, um, and he can always, uh, contribute and, and do well on on that front yeah yeah um and prior to that it was like 25 to 30 points maybe like 10 11 12 goals that was the norm for andrew Kopp. and last year particularly in the first half when he really caught on fire that was an indication of okay they could get more than the norm here of course the canadian division <laughs> kind of um kind of add a little bit of an asterisk to that because like okay what's he gonna do when he plays teams uh the heavyweight teams in the western conference like colorado and st louis like how effective is he gonna be and i guess we won't really know for sure until we get we see him in that role but the fact that he can contribute in a top six capacity is definitely huge for the jets moving forward because that was the thing when they traded away patrick line is like okay can nikolai ehlers and andrew Kopp do the job and obviously they can't yeah. and they're going to have cool perfetti uh, in the mix um upcoming which is going to be huge for them uh and you know they still have wheeler and, and shifley there but they're entering or at, nearing close to the end of the prime stages of their career so the question uh, is going to be Okay, what what's going to be expected out of those guys moving forward in the next three, four, or five years? So that's why it's going to be huge for Andrew Kopp. And personally for him, it's going to be a huge year because after this year, it's not like, okay, the Jets can always go to arbitration. No, he can sign anywhere he wants this year. After this year, he's a free agent. He can go to the open market. So if he really explodes, uh, this could be... Uh, putting him uh, this could be a situation where he's put into like a very good spot because now he could go from like three million per year to like six million per year and could be one of those like bargain acquisitions because there there are some legitimate all-stars that are free agents at the end of this year and i feel like andrew cop could be i hate to bring up the name blake coleman because just recency bias (laughs) but he's the type of guy where like 
if he has a really good year, I can definitely see a team not breaking the bank or like drastically overpaying, but maybe paying Cobb a bit more than what he's probably worth and giving him like a six year or seven year term. Yep. So I can definitely see Andrew Cobb being that type of player around the likes of uh, Jared McCann or David Perron, where if he really explodes and has a good showing with the Jets, um, he could he could end up going to the highest theater type of deal uh, this coming yeah. offseason. Yeah, that is a good point. I hadn't really thought of the fact that like you know the Jets are still like at the ceiling on the on the cap, you know, in terms of cap space. So. Um, so yeah, I, I guess they do have the benefit of the fact that, like you know, they paid him for like they undervalued his contract just a little bit. But yeah, he could end up going to free agency and signing with another team for a longer, longer term. It's not like he's an RFA um, like Pierre Luc Dubois is um, this year, for instance. So um, so yeah, he has less team control and he doesn't have to sign a team friendly deal after this after this. Um, contract end so yeah it'll be interesting to see how that goes um all right in terms of prospects we actually have a three-way tie for the best prospect uh it might be a first time that that's ever happened um so um so i i guess uh steve kind of alluded to Billy hanola he also talked about cole perfetti those are two guys that I will also talk about. Um, but um, the uh, um, so so in terms of Billy Hanola, we'll start with him first. Uh, he had um, uh, fourteen points in uh, nineteen games for the Liga, uh, where he was on loan. Um, he's a Finnish player. Um, and he had one goal and 13 assists. Um, he also played a bit, uh, five games in Winnipeg, but he didn't really stick, um, or didn't score any points there. Um, and then he played in, uh, the Manitoba Moose for a bit for 19 games where he had 11 points in 19 games. Um, and he also played for Finland in the under twenties where he had four assists in seven games. Um, the year before that, um, I don't know if you remember this, but it was like, uh, the start of the year, he played his first eight games in the league, and then he just went back to the AHL and then eventually to the Liga again. But his first eight games in the league uh, two years ago, he had five points in eight games, um, which was very good. And I thought, like, okay, like, this guy could be pretty good for the, like, you know, he could keep it up and, and be consistent throughout. But um, it turns out that they just... You know, they wanted to develop him and, and just leave him in the minors for a time. But, yeah, I, I, I find it hard to believe that he'll be um, he'll be in Manitoba or in Liga, um, and he'll, he'll be in Winnipeg this, this coming year. Um, yeah, so, um, so yeah, I, I, I guess you kind of already talked about Billy Hanola, but, um, but, yeah, do you have anything else on Hanola before I get to Brevetti? <laughs> Well, mostly uh, to talk about Hainola is what makes him so good offensively because yeah. we talked about his offensive upside. But his hockey IQ is what really stands out. Um, his incredible poise, his ability to always seem, uh, his ability to not always make the right decision with the puck, but more often than not, make good, accurate decisions. 
uh, with the biscuit on his stick. Um, that also makes him very valuable. Um, you're looking for that guy who isn't phased by those big moments. And it seems like Billy Hanola is the guy that thrives on that stage. Um, and when you can do that consistently, you immediately become a very respected NHL defenseman. Um, not to say that he's going to be like a top 20 defenseman within his like first four to five years. It might take some time to like really deliver that street cred. But um, I definitely think there's a high enough ceiling where within the next two to three years, he can be a solid power play one contributor, a guy that's playing first pairing, second pairing minutes, uh, depending on where he slots in with the Jets, uh, where things are going with their blue line. Um, but I really have high hopes for this kid, and the numbers back it up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, Cole Perfetti is the other one that kind of had a three-way tie. Um, he, uh, yeah, so this past year he played for the Manitoba Moose. Um, he was, uh, he had uh, 26 points in 32 games. Um and uh, he's another one, I guess he's another one of those ones that doesn't really score a ton of goals. Um, and, um, but yeah, he was, he was still, you know, that's still decent numbers, um, especially for someone who's 19 years old um, in the system. I, I guess I'm looking here, he was 33rd in the points race uh, in the AHL this past year. Um, so uh, just from a perspective standpoint, but, um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting in terms of like when you look at the list of center depth for the Winnipeg Jets, um, they pretty much just have um, uh, they they pretty much have Pierre Luc Dubois, um, Mark Shifley, Paul Stasny, and and no one really else. So Cole's I I could see Cole Perfetti fitting in uh, almost right away. I I think he is ready to to go to the Winnipeg right now, but um, at the same time, I could see them maybe just like waiting another year and putting him in Manitoba for another year. But um, but yeah, it looks like he uh, he could be a pretty good prospect for them. There's something about like first round picks and the Winnipeg Jets. They always seem to get the first round picks right. um, but yeah, it looks like this guy's going to be pretty good too. Yeah, the funny part with Perfetti in that, in that his draft year, I think the Jets only had like four picks. Yeah. Like, who really cares? Like, be, they to, hit on one of them yeah, and yeah. it was 10th overall. Yeah, I was about to say, like, to be fair, it's hard to, like, uh, get the 10th overall pick wrong. But at the same time, like, when you see other 10th overall picks, you're like, okay, maybe <laughs> they could have picked better. But yeah, yeah, it yeah, seems and- like they hit this guy. And Perfetti is a guy that in his draft year, people were projecting him to be like a top five, top yep. 10 pick. And like for him to be at 10th overall, it was just yep. like Winnipeg's uh, getting a real stroke of luck there. You know, obviously yep. there were going to be like, you know, favorable prospects like maybe Lucas Raymond uh, would would be there as well. Anton Lindell, um, they could and that would be a good consolation prize for picking 10th overall, yep. but to have a dynamic player like Perfetti available, that's some excellent timing for the Jets. We're talking about a guy that was like top three OHL player in scoring uh, 74 assists in 61 games his draft year, 111 points, 37 goals. Uh, and the year before that, um, as an OHL regular, he had 37 goals and 74 points in 63 games, which not too many OHL players can make a quite the statement like he did. And then to go into the AHL, 
and be almost a point of game player, that's no easy task either. And what really struck me last year is that, yes, he played for Team Canada at the World Juniors and did pretty well, but he also played for Canada at the World Championships, a tournament with a, a, which is mostly filled with men, not teenage hockey players. And even though he only got two goals and no assists in those 10 games, he still got two goals in 10 games and got to uh, uh, play against a lot of NHL heavy talents. A lot of teams with NHL uh, heavy talents, and if not NHL talents, guys with a lot of experience in the European leagues, which is, uh, again, you know, those leagues are very talented in their own right. Um, so that's definitely good exposure for him moving forward. Playing in the in that situation is definitely good for his development. And I, I think his goal scoring is, is what's really lacking attention right now because, yes, he's a good setup guy, but he's got a very underrated shot that he can use. And once I think you start to see more of that, you're going to see a guy that maybe is not scoring at the pace that Kyle Connor is, but I think a guy that can definitely score the pace as someone like Nikolai Ehlers. And it's not a situation where you can put him on, uh, in a situation where like he's taking face toss every game. He can also play on the left wing which depending on how your cop situation works out, you could be looking at a guy that's a second line left winger for the Jets uh, at worst, a third line center. And I think in, it, you put him in the right situation uh, in a couple of years. I definitely think he can be a top six forward power play one capability um, and a guy that's consistently contributing offensively for the Jets uh, to get to get a, a player of this caliber where they did. It's a steal for them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, just looking at the draft right now, uh, the 2020 draft, the, Askarov went right after Perfetti, and then Anton Lindell, um, and then Seth Jarvis, and then Dylan Holloway. So I could I could see them maybe end up regretting not taking Askarov or Lindell, but at, at the same time, like you know, they're pretty solid up front. They're they're good in goal for a couple more years. So. <laughs> they don't necessarily need Askroff or Lindell, but um, but yeah, at the same time, they don't even really need Cole Perfetti either, um, and they have him. Um, and then the lastly, the uh, tied for I feel like uh, Chaz Lucius uh, deserves to have a mention as a best prospect as well because he's because um, I, I think the interesting thing is is that like he. The, he was another good draft pick, but he was drafted 18th overall uh, by Winnipeg. And I was expecting him to, like, maybe go in the top 10. Um, and the fact that they were able to get him in the late teens um, in the draft is just very good. I think a, re- a big reason why he fell was he was injured for most of the year. And then when he played for, um, he was he's on the U.S. national under-18 team. Um, and then when he played for them, he was pretty good. He had 13 goals in 13 games uh, for the U.S. Uh, national team, uh, 20 points in 13 games uh, to be exact. And then when he played for the U.S. and TDP juniors um, in the USHL, he he was he had a, a 13 goals in 12 games, and that's 18 points in 12 games. So. Um, 
so yeah, I, I guess they're like, you know, obviously you want to see what he's like in, um, in a, like a league where, uh, you know, just a, a full-time league and stuff like that, but, um, and he's going to play, uh, for the University of Minnesota this, this coming year, um, so I'll be curious to see how he does in, in that perspective, but, yeah, I feel like the fact that he was able, he's just, like, a goal scorer, he could be, like, the next, I don't, actually, I don't want to say Cole Caulfield, because, but, like, it is a similar career path from, from that perspective, but, um, but yeah, it, just the fact that he can score a lot of goals, which is different than what uh, Cole Perfetti and Vili Hinola can provide. Although, you know, of course, what Hinola and Perfetti can provide is, is very good and they can be, you know, good playmakers in the NHL. But the fact that, you know, a thing with the playmakers is that you need goal scorers to, uh, uh, to score. Um, you can't just, like, win games just by passing the puck all the time. So um, you just need guys who can shoot it. Yes, you have Kyle Connor. Um, and yes, you have Nikolai Ehlers who can score goals, but, um, but yeah, this is another guy that you can have in the future who, uh, who could be like a, a Kyle Connor type player, uh, for the Winnipeg Jets. It's funny because you talk about Kyle Connor, he was drafted 18th overall as yep. draft year and Chad Lucius drafted 18th yeah, overall yeah, no, as draft uh, year. Uh, yeah, it's another comparable. To Kyle Connor I guess Kyle Connor, realize. yeah, and Kyle Connor, I think was also on the U.S. national team. Think too. Yeah, it might have right. been. Might have been. I'll, I'll look this up before. <laughs> We're definitely in a background, anyways. Yeah, before, yeah. before he turned pro. That's um, possible, yeah. But yeah, taking a look at uh, Chaz Lucius, who is also a center and uh, is a right-handed shot. Yep. Um, it it's uh, interesting when we take a look at his shot. Uh, Elite Prospects Draft Guide in 2021 said that this is a type of player that can work the one and two touch snapshot with power and precision. So we're talking about good, quick, efficient shots. Kyle Connor is known for being quick and efficient with his goal scoring. Same with Patrick Laine when he was on the Jets. Um, Lucius is someone that uh, can send the puck on net with a deceptive uh, wrist shot uh, with good vision as well. Um, he can also spot guys who are on the open ice and he's more more often than not able to get them the puck when he spots them. Um, someone that can read plays really well, read his teammates very well, anticipate plays as they happen, and um, just just an all-around uh, great cerebral presence on the ice. So so that's that's something I really like, is that he can read the play well and also has a deceptive shot. That has the makings of a very good goal scorer. Not, again, like Caulfield good, because uh, people, yes, they know Caulfield for his dynamic uh, goal-scoring abilities uh, with the U.S. National Development Program. It should also be noted that while we were talking highly of Caulfield, he had like a season and a half, two seasons of NCAA experience. Right. Chaz Lucius has committed to the University of Minnesota, but this dude hasn't even played a single NCAA game. Right, right, right. So we haven't really seen him at the highest collegiate level yet. Yeah. So we, we should probably pump the brakes a little bit. But it should be noted that <laughs> in the United States Hockey League, he was just over a goal per game, 13 goals in 12 games. And with the development program, exactly a goal per game with 13 goals in 13 games. So you, you definitely look at those numbers and you can't help but be impressed at what he provides. 
uh, with his high-octane offense, with his ability to solve problems, which is another trait that I like to see. I like to see good two-way forwards that can anticipate what to do when things go awry. Those are the type of players that really separate themselves Hmm. as opposed to like primary power play forwards that if they're caught flat-footed, they become a liability uh, to your team. And yet this guy can be a threat anywhere in the offensive zone and can uh, make things happen with his crafty hands uh, on top of his uh, quick lethal shot. So uh, there's definitely a lot to like with Chaz Lucius. I can definitely see the hype to this kid's game. The only reason I think that uh, he's not getting enough hype is because we haven't seen him play at the collegiate yep, level. And I'm interested to see where 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 he is in his development, how we look at him development-wise once we see his first full season um, come in to college. a close at, uh, at the University of Minnesota. A good hockey program, so we right. should do well. Yeah, but for the record, the reason why I compared him to Cole Caulfield is just, like, I wasn't even thinking of Cole Caulfield's time in Wisconsin. I was thinking of, like, right. him and his draft year. Um, but of course, yes. like, yeah, like Caulfield ended up killing it in Wisconsin and there's a potential that Lucius has, could, could do the same in, for Minnesota, but, uh, of course mm-hmm. he hasn't done that just yet. Um, yeah. and also I, I looked this up, Kyle Connor did not take the same route as, uh, Ch- Chaz Lucius either. Uh, he did play in the USHL though, but, uh, mm-hmm. and then he went to Michigan, uh, his, yes. uh, the, D plus one year, so um, similar, but he didn't play for the uh, development team uh, for them. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then in terms of a uh, wild card stuff, um, we uh, wild card stuff, wild card prospect. Uh, we're actually going to talk about the second round pick that the Winnipeg Jets selected this year, and that was uh, Nikita Chiprikov. Um, the thing that's interesting about Shiprikov is that he's five foot ten, so he's another one of these short guys. Um, he's Russian, um, and um, what's interesting is is that like when you look at like he's he played in three leagues uh, this past year, um, and he was also in the World Juniors, but uh, for the under 18s But he also so he played in three uh, leagues, uh, the VHL, which I think is like the third tier league um in russia uh he had eight points in 20 games so that that's decent but you know could be better um the mhl which is the second league um the second tier um in the russia in russia um that he had nine points in 11 games so that's that's pretty good um and then he played for scott st petersburg um, in the KHL, um, and he had uh, two points in 16 games, um, which is, like, you know, decent, but, again, we don't know, like, just like Pod Colson, we don't know his real, like, his ice time. That could be, like, he may end up having, like, eight minutes of ice time or something like that. So it, it turns out that's pretty, um, it could be pretty good. But um, another reason to bring him up as well is that, like, uh, in the under-18s, uh, for Russia um, in the World Juniors, he was the captain of Team Russia, and he had 13 points in seven in seven games. Um, I was reading here that a lot of that may have ended up being because he was line mates with um, the generational talent ne- uh, next year um, in Matvey Mikov, um, but 
Um, but, like, you know, that's still, you know, even still 13 points in seven games, that's nothing to sneeze at either. Um, and um, so I, I, I think, like, the KHL and the VHL have already started, um, and he, play, he had two points in two games for the VHL, but now he's in the KHL. And he had four, uh, in, in just four games, he has zero points so far. But, um, but yeah, I think the fact that, like, he was, he, he looked impressive in the uh, under-18s, um, and then he also looked impressive in the MHL. Um, and and we'll, it, I think it's just, he's a wild card because we don't know, well, first off, he's a shorter guy, so we don't know, you know, that's that always is a risk for these types of players. But also, it's like, he hasn't excelled yet in the KHL, but there's definitely a potential there, um, just seeing how he's able to uh, contribute. So in terms of his draft here, um, according to Elite Prospects Draft Guide, um, you, you, you look at the positive things they say about him, and one of the things that sticks out to me is that he really excels at getting the puck up the ice while also facilitating high danger, high octane offense. So facilitating. So like he's the guy that stirs the drink. He he's the guy that starts to get things going. He starts the rush basically. Uh, it's one thing to keep up with the rush and keep up with the play and be there where your teammates expect you to be. But if you're the guy that's initiating that rush up the ice, that tells me you're more than just a guy that's beating off the other guys. You're you're the guy that's actually contributing to the success of your shift. Um, so so that's what really catches my eye and gives me hope that it's not because of player X that this guy got 13 points in seven games at this tournament. Um, he's just as good of a player as that player is. Um, so the fact that he's got the speed and the skill to be that unpredictable, that elusive winger, um, the fact that he also has good puck control um, also uh, helps him out, especially in tight spaces. That's a strength of his apparently as well. Um, getting guys like that in the second round, it's, it's, it's really tough, especially, again, when you consider the pandemic and all of the right. external circumstances. And, and like we said, with the Park Colson situation, it's one thing uh, to get uh, key minutes in SKA St. Petersburg, but especially as a teenager at any, at any team, basically in mm -hmm. Russia, that's tough to do to really have, uh, to really have a statement type of season when you're a teenager. Yeah. Um, so the fact that he's pointless in four games this year, doesn't surprise me. The fact they only got two points in 16 KHL games last year, doesn't really surprise me. Um, what I take most of an interest in is this under 17s where he had eight points in six games uh, the year before his draft year. And then the world uh, under 18s, like you said, when he was team captain, I take that into consideration as well. And it's not like he's going to be the guy that the Winnipeg's offense runs on when he gets here. Uh, when he gets here, you're still going to have a lot of their core pieces still around that can help him along, that can help him see the ice a little bit better. And he can just slowly get into a groove by himself. And then when he's a couple of years into his NHL career, he can really thrive and he doesn't need the guidance and he can just go out there and do it and be a part of the movement they have and, and not really 
uh, rely on other guys to start things. He can start things by himself. That's my hope, at least. So when he does turn pro, which is probably not going to be this year, if anything, it could be next year or the year after that, I can definitely see at least a full AHL season before we can see the NHL impact of this kid. But I think within the next three to four years, um, he's really going to start to make some waves in the Jets system to the point where he is going to be a regular on that team. Yeah, I I don't think, for the record, I don't think he's going to even be on, like he's going to be on the pro roster even like two years from now, even if he is (laughs) very good. Um, like I could see him being like a long-term project for them where we'll see him like four years from now and be like, oh, remember this Chipikov guy? I was like, oh yeah, I I think we, we did a prospect thing on him. Right. Uh, so Mm -hmm. then we'll, um, you know, that, that's when we'll see him. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, um, but I think at the moment it's, it's just someone to keep an eye on for sure. Um, all right, that about does it. Finally, we're, we're done with this prospect stuff, and hopefully our episodes will get shorter. Um, and, um, yeah, that's that's about it. Um, our, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at Lace Up Podcast. You can uh, follow us on Facebook at Lace Them Up. Our, uh, you know, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, uh, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts, subscribe to us there. Uh, that's about it. I'm Brett Dubuff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll tee up the season preview in episode 289 of the Lace Mo Podcast. Cool.